Hello, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Pod... Pro- pro- <laughs> myself this year <laughs> yeah there you go that that's the introduction we're not going to reach we're not gonna oh, yeah that's good today. that's good that's, in fact uh, if only we could render that into text we could really make it our new title actually i want to make that's that true. my new uh my new uh phone uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah let's just roll with that that's the yep. introduction Excellent. i'm your co-host dave i can't i can't i can't speak properly um um, which makes me perfect for for podcasting, of course. <laughs> I'm joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor Corey Olson and the Tolkien maven Trish Lambert. And I'm very, very excited to uh, tell you that we have two special guests today: our script leads, Nick and Marie, who are here to um, who are here to defend relentless attacks on their work <laughs> from the executives. <laughs> Um, so this is the first of um, probably about 15 episodes where we review the script outlines. We're, we're, we're planning, we're, we're shooting to try and get through like four or five today, which means we'll get through less than one. Um, I'm confident we'll get we'll, through at least one today. And we should finish this process up by the end of 2018. Exactly. Great. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I had so much fun. Last season, uh, I thought that this, you know, this segment here is the first part of our, uh, you know, kind of uh, post-production episodes at the end of our season planning uh, was really, really fun last year. I really loved the opportunity uh, to go back and look over again, you know, to get the sort of bird's eye view of the story of the season. Um, not to mention the fact that it's just kind of fun to go back to uh, to episode one of the season when it's now been months and months since we did that, and I can barely remember what I talked about the week before. So uh, it's all fresh and new to me when I read it through in the outlines again, and I'm like, "Well, this is a great story. Who thought of this? This is fantastic." Um, uh, so anyway, so that's fun all by itself. But as I said, it 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 really does provide a really great chance to do uh, uh, to do an overview and and begin to see how it all sort of shapes together. And I think that that's really, really fun. So I've been looking forward to this uh, part of the process all season. Um, And of course I want to, begin uh, by thanking you guys, Nick and Marie and everybody else who, who, who uh, pitches in and helps out and works with you uh, to, uh, to, to do these outlines. I know that you guys, uh, you guys meet and talk about these. Uh, uh, and do you want to just sort of talk a little bit about your process there so people kind of know what goes on there behind the scenes? Uh, sure. Nick. Yeah. <laughs> so basically... Um, usually on a bi-weekly or sometimes weekly when we get a little bit behind basis, uh, we get together on Saturday evenings at 7.30 Eastern Standard or Daylight Time. Um, and we go through all this stuff. And so basically, we start out working on what needs to be in the episode. We talk about the point of view characters for the different plot lines, because now we're starting to get more than one plot line in an episode, which is exciting. Um, and then we worked, worked through act by act to figure out 
you know, what scenes need to be where, who needs to be there, who needs to be talking, what their points of view are, what the end point that we're trying to get to in each scene is. Um, and basically, it's it's been a lot of fun the whole time. Uh, Marie and I have stayed up <laughs> way past bedtime <laughs> many times working through this stuff, as well as some of the other folks who've been um, in on it. But, uh, yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Yeah. It's just, it's really neat to see. Uh, I always look forward to reading uh, the outlines, not only because I really enjoy uh, the work that you guys do, but it's just fun to see, you know, of course in our, in our episodes, uh, you know, in our sessions, when we're talking through the episodes one by one, you know, we're focused mostly on like the bigger concepts, right? What are the sort of the main story ideas? And, and we you know, think of in particular about some of the adaptation challenges and, you know, how we want to shape the season as a whole and how this all fits in. And of course, sometimes uh, often, we will get particular images or pictures of of how a particular scene could go or or you know what a particular thing could look like um but of course what we don't have time to do is really shape it together into a consistent story thinking through all the things that you were just describing you know what you know, the 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 characters' point of views and how every how the how the actual episode will sort of thread together as a as a narrative itself uh, Usually, we find that you guys give us everything we need for the final act of the episode of what you know where everything ends up. But we usually have to put some more work in in the earlier part to lead up to it. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. And that's that's really that's really fun to see that stuff all come together. So, um, awesome, great. Uh, so, uh, uh, are there uh, people you guys would like to mention? I know, again, you guys have been our you guys have been our leads. Marie, of course, is. <clears throat> the one who uh, uh, prepares our awesome slides uh, every session too, which is, uh, which is fantastic. Um, but are there other uh, people you guys want to give a shout out to who, who have been really helpful uh, yeah. with the outlines uh, this season? Phil Ivrin had um, joined the message board during the season three process, and uh, she's helped out a lot on the later uh, script outline. So the stuff in the early part is probably not her fault. So not today, <laughs> but, um, but she helped a lot with the later ones to, uh, to get uh, certain ideas in there. So great. great. Uh, so yeah. Awesome. Typically if, uh, if we come back with a question like four weeks after you guys have discussed it, it's typically because it's a question that file even has, uh, has brought up that right. we hadn't thought of while you guys were talking. So. All right. Cool. Good. Good. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's great, and I know that uh, you know many of the the people who have been working with you guys all along have been, you know, continuing to to pitch in this season as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hakan, you know, you guys know has had a lot of input in a lot of stuff. Um, you know, so a lot of the time, I'm trying to remember. Oh wait, wait what, did, what did Hakan say about that one thing? <laughs> what was that? Uh, Marielle also, I think. I was trying to recall something that she had said about the frame a few episodes ago so that we could integrate it. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tiring girl. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great. Great. Awesome. Okay, well, before we uh, jump into uh, uh, talking about some outline issues here, um, I want to first do announcements as I always do here at the beginning, because we are having a, a, a very exciting time um, uh, update on 
uh, our state certification and accreditation process. I do recommend this uh, this link to you. This is uh, uh, this will uh, give you some more information on what's going on. Um, I think I, I mean I think I spoke last week about the awesome success of our fundraiser and the the wonderful support we've had. We've now raised almost. Five thousand dollars more than we asked for. You know, we've we've raised twenty five, twenty eight thousand five hundred dollars in the last few weeks to support our certification and accreditation fees, which is awesome. So we're we're now, uh, you know, a a a noticeable percentage of the way uh, towards raising our fees for accreditation as well as uh, all of our uh, fees towards certification. So that has been. Um, uh, that has been hugely exciting. It was, uh, uh, it's been, that's, that's been awesome. So, and that process is the certification process is now, is now hastening along. Um, we are finalizing now our, uh, documentation, our printed institutional plan that we have to send in. Um, I'm going to be printing, I'm going to be sending that to the printers. Um, uh, um, uh, I'm going to be sending it to the printers early next week. Uh, as you can see, I'm a little bit dazed because I'm kind of sleep deprived because I've been working on this a lot. Uh, but anyway, yeah, this has been this has been the biggest thing that's going on uh, that's going on here with me. But yeah, I'm going to be driving our official institutional plan up to Concord and handing it into the Department of Education next Tuesday. So uh, that is. Uh, kind of an amazing thing and then we're going to be moving on to our site visit and review and everything and this whole process should be culminating uh prior to MythMoot. um you know MythMoot, as you see there on the bottom of the page happening june 21st to 24th uh and uh, uh june 19th is going to be the date of uh the uh uh, the meeting of the Higher Education Commission, where uh, Signum's case is going to come before the commission for a vote. So uh, that is uh, pretty exciting timing. Uh, and while on that subject, of course, Myth Mood 5 is going to be awesome. The uh, We should be releasing the final schedule, uh, uh, you know, of... Um, Everything that's going to be happening. Of course, we've had the keynote speakers and everything uh, for a while, but it's gonna we're gonna we're gonna have all of the the the, the sessions and everything that will be coming out very soon. Uh, so that so uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, the I definitely uh, uh, hope that uh, people are going to be able to make it to Mythmoot because it is always our uh, our biggest annual celebration, uh, and it will be a celebration of special significance uh, and magnificence this year. But of course, prior to that, we have London Moot, uh, which is coming up next week. Now, I will be this time next week. I will be in London uh, doing some awesome stuff. We're going to be doing this t- literary tour of London, where we're going to be going to antiquary bookstores and museums. I'm going to go to the British Museum, uh, to the British Library, and get to see, you know, like the Beowulf text, and uh, I, I, it's going to be great. Uh, I've, I've been there once before, actually, but only once. Uh, so I, I, I can't wait to go to the British Library and uh, see the stuff there. We're going to go see Hamlet at the Globe. It's going to be great. I, I can't wait. So that's going to be what I'm going to be doing next Friday. And then next Saturday is uh, is London Moot. Um, so uh, I, I look forward to getting to uh, to meet some of our regulars there. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's going to be awesome. Um, and then. Uh, 
summer classes, yeah. Our summer classes begin on May 7th. Uh, and I just wanted to encourage people to, you know, one thing I wanted to sort of share with people that, uh, you know, many people have been discovering lately. Um, you know, when you may see, especially if you follow us on social media or something, you may see us talking about our talking about our courses and you may say to yourself, well, those courses sound really awesome, but you know, I, I'm not like getting a master's degree uh, that, you know, that's really not what I want, but like the, you know, the, it sounds interesting to sort of, to, to learn about that. Um, I just wanted to make sure people sort of knew about one of the really uh, kind of different features that we have. All of our courses are available for people to audit um, and for people to audit sort of flexibly and asynchronously. We know that not everybody needs a master's degree. Like it's master's degree in language and literature, not the most practical thing on the in in the world. You know, it's not like the thing that's guaranteed to get everybody ahead in life. Um, but of course, I know that, you know, there are very many people who, you know, would just really enjoy learning this stuff for personal enrichment. So uh, for all of our courses, so if you go to Signum University, org and you look at our you look at our courses uh, there are links on all of those pages uh, for you to be able to register for anytime audits uh, of them that is it's what it's what we call them the anytime audits so you can audit the classes anytime get access to all the lecture materials all the readings and stuff so that you can go through and uh, and 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 do the whole course basically on your own at your own time you know with that with that you know no pressure no worries or anything um, so um uh, anyway, yeah, so that's, um, that's, that's going to be, uh, really, um, uh, uh, that, that's a pretty, a, a really great opportunity. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had a lot of people discovering that lately and being really excited about it. So, uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew when we're advertising the courses, it's not just for the people in our master's degree program, uh, but also for everybody to, you know, Take a look at our classes and uh, you know see if there's anything that you would uh, that you would want to do. And you absolutely can anytime audit past courses, Marielle. All of our courses are open. Pretty much all of our courses that we've ever offered, uh, with only a couple exceptions, are open for uh, for anytime audit. So yeah, at, at any point you can go back. You want to you want you want to learn? Have you always wanted to learn Anglo-Saxon? You can go do. You know, our Intro to Anglo-Saxon course. You can do our Intro to Old Norse course. You, know, you can go back and do some of my uh, Tolkien courses, like the Story of the Hobbit, which we're running again this uh, summer, but you can audit it any time. You know, um, Verlin Flieger's Lord of the Rings seminar. Uh, you know, Tom Shippey's Beowulf class. The uh, Beyond Middle-Earth class that I did with Tom Shippey on Tolkien's non-Middle-Earth uh, stories and uh, his scholarship stuff. Um you know, there's all kinds of uh, 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 things that we have uh, uh, offered in our um, uh, in our sort of archives there that you can go back and do. So, anyway, that's the uh, uh, that's the story. Oh, and uh, Tim Fisher, thank you for reminding me. I meant to mention about London Moot. Um, there, is, there, we are planning to, hoping to live stream at least some of our uh, talks from London Moot actually on our Twitch channel. So uh, you should totally go to twitch.tv slash and subscribe to the Twitch channel so that you get email notifications when that channel goes live and then that way you won't miss out on what of the London Moot action we are uh, able to stream there. So yeah. Um, cool. And yeah, so question about uh, are there? I'm so uh, jealous you're going. Yeah, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. And for those of you who are missing it this year, we'll do it again next year. But oh man, this is gonna be so cool. Um, so um, 
Uh, question: Do we have plans to do any kind of undergraduate work? Yes, we do have plans. Now, not instantly, right? That's not in the immediate plans, like within the next few years. Um, but that is absolutely the. Well, I won't say our end goal because who knows what our end goal is. But that that is sort of the big plan um, that we want to expand to an to an undergraduate program. <clears throat> the accredit the the certification and accreditation of our. Um, of our master's degree program uh, is our first stage in that. And then we'll be developing our graduate program some, and then we'll be expanding that into an undergraduate program as well. Um, It's all part of the, all part of the big strategy of how you do a grassroots crowdfunded university starting up from nothing. Uh, And that is not trying to do too much all at once uh, because it's complicated. So, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's definitely the plan. All right. And those are our announcements at this exciting period of uh, uh, Signum's existence here. Um, And again, just the one last note that I would say coming back again to the certification stuff Again, I, I realize that the, the, the certification of our graduate uh, program might sound like a somewhat tangential thing, right, to people who are primarily followers of the Tolkien Professor podcast or, you know, the, the various kind of Mythgard Academy uh, programs and things that I've been doing. Again, if you don't really plan to do a master's degree, it might seem like it is kind of cool in theory but doesn't really apply to you. Um, except it does because it's a university that makes all of the Mythgard stuff possible. Um, I wouldn't be able to, to, to do any of these things if, you know, we were not under the umbrella of and supported by Signum University. And as Signum is certified, uh, and then we move, we enter the accreditation process after that. And, uh, as we move forward, um, Build. We're we're looking first and foremost to build the kind of firm foundation for Signum moving forward that we've never really had. We've been living kind of year to year and month to month for seven years now, and we've survived thanks to you know the wonderful support we get from all of you guys. Um, but the more Signum University is able to build and achieve its you know institutional and educational goals, the the more uh, richness permanence and opportunities for expansion we have in the Mythgard programs. I, I want to make sure that everybody knows that, you know, the Mythgard's the Mythgard stuff is here to stay. This is, this is a huge part of what Signum does. And it's one of the things that makes Signum really different is that we're not just committed. We are not only committed to, you know, offering courses for credit courses, degree courses, uh, you know, for much, you know, that are A, cooler, uh, uh, B, different as online courses, and C, uh, cheaper than almost anywhere else. No, pretty much anywhere else. Uh, but at the same time, we're also committed to not only maintaining but expanding our opportunities for open public education. Um, I would love to see Mythgard do for other fandoms what we've done for Tolkien fandoms. You know, I would love to have the same kinds of stuff, uh, uh, the same kinds of discussions happening for other, you know, fantasy authors, science fiction stuff that, uh, that, that, you know, that we currently do for Tolkien and we haven't been able to do because we can't support it yet. Um, so, so yes, Mythgard will be growing and expanding and, uh, and stabilizing as Signum grows and expands and stabilizes. So I, I want, I want to make sure that, you know, those of you guys who have been our, our faithful Mythgard followers for years, uh, understand the implication, you know, the, the implications that this stuff has for, uh, for Mythgard things as well. All right. 
End of announcements. Needless to say, as I've been spending hours and hours and hours, you know, on our documentation for certification, I've got all this stuff in my head, right? So I can talk about this stuff for, you know, the next three hours. But I should not do that. Let's instead talk about season three. Well, instead, actually, before we do that, let's talk about something else. So I want to talk about the frame before we get into the details of the outline. And I... I say this. Here begins the. We're standing at the mouth of the rabbit hole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I. So I was talking to Dave and Trish about this in advance. This is one of the reasons we were a little, a little bit later than usual starting today because I was like, okay, I have a confession to make, and that is, I, I want to talk about something that has a, 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 a significant chance of derailing the entire rest of our discussion, but I don't think I can. I can withhold it. And that is I want to talk about I want to talk about the concept of the frame. So uh, first, we recall the original conception of the frame story, why we wanted a frame story. And there were a couple reasons why we wanted a frame story. Uh, and one uh, the, 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 the original impulse for this back in season one uh, was to be telling the Silmarillion story in kind of a Book of Lost Tales uh, sort of structure, right? Where we have uh, the frame story, and the purpose of the frame story is to contextualize the stories, right? But to to present the stories as stories, so that we're not just kind of living in the moment of the Silmarillion story coming through, but that we are thinking about the Silmarillion as tales that are told in the third age of Middle-earth, right? Um, Because I wanted to really emphasize the connection between the Silmarillion stuff and the third age stuff. Not only the connection in the sense of a historical connection, um, but a connection in the sense of um, the impact that those stories themselves have on the third age stuff. Like, you know, Sam and Frodo talking about Baron and Luthien in the stair- in the, uh, on the stairs of Cirith Ungol, for instance, right, as one of the most prominent examples of that kind of thing. Or, you know, Strider singing the story of Baron and Luthien on, in the Dell under Weathertop, uh, for instance, or several other times when the story of Baron and Luthien is important. Uh, but anyway, that, you know, that... Um, um, that kind of, or you know, Sam reciting Gilgalad was an elven king, and and you know the story of of Eärendil recited by Bilbo at Rivendell. You know the the ways in which the the recounting of these stories uh, has a direct impact. Again, not merely a historical, but a um, uh, but a direct impact on the Third Age story. And and so I wanted to I wanted to really emphasize that. So you'll remember that in season one. Uh, uh, and in season two, uh, both of them, especially season one, but both of them really, the emphasis was someone is going to tell these stories, right? We're going to have a teller of these stories. And And the whole point of the frame is to introduce the telling and to, and then, and we, and we introduced into the, the, um, into that that telling a, you know, a story arc, right? So that there would be some character development. It wouldn't just be, and now we come to the shot of like the the person. I was about to say random person, but of course it's not a random person. Like it was Elrond who was telling the stories in season one, uh, and it was you know in conversation with Arwen uh, between Arwen and Galadriel and Celeborn primarily, who were the uh, who were telling stories in season two. Um, uh, so. Anyway, so so this is this is that that was that was 
that was the concept, right? We wanted to introduce the this sort of plot development so we wouldn't just have, like, and now a talking head who's telling us the story of this. Again, we wanted to show these stories coming into contact with, that is, the Silmarillion stories coming into contact with the Third Age stories. So we had character development. So you will remember season one, Elrond was the primary teller of the tales, but we had his... Um, we had like the conflict between him and Gilrine, uh, the mother of young Estelle, um, uh, as sort of the primary driving force of, uh, of course we had Estelle's own growth and, uh, and, and sort of him thinking through some things and, and, and realizing some things, but it was mostly between Elrond and Gilrine, uh, that that was, and then of course we had Arwen and her kind of thinking about things and trying to sort things out in sort of parallel with the, uh, with the season material, with the Silmarillion material, um, and her hearing stories as well. Um, Season three, we talked about the frame at the beginning, right? And we, we, we sort of laid out the and we were thinking in the same terms of thinking about the context, thinking about the sort of the plot arc of the frame and how this is, you know, in contact with the, 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 the season three storyline. Um, we wanted uh, Aragorn to be the, the center Right of that, uh, you know, sort of the, the 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 protagonist of the frame, the centerpiece of that. I was really interested in, um, as you will recall, the sort of parallel between Feanor and Aragorn. Right, sort of looking at Aragorn as, um, in a sense, a kind of a foil for for Feanor to show Feanor as a kind of a cautionary tale. For Aragorn, as he is, you know, coming into adulthood and learning about how to be, you know, a leader and taking responsibility and things like that, um, you know, I, I, I thought and still think that there's a lot of, of, of real richness there. And, and again, it's about showing how these stories are relevant because that kind of interconnectedness, that kind of intimate interrelationship between the original stories and the new stories is something that I think is, is super important to the development of Tolkien's thought and, and to Tolkien's story patterns themselves. This is why you see so many repeated patterns, right? It's not just that, you know, Tolkien is uh, unoriginal and keeps telling the same story again and again in different ways, right? He has these things come back again and again, and we have these similar, you know, the new characters put into similar situations and responding in similar ways such that we can take these scenes and put them next to each other. Um, and this is, of course, something that we've been actively developing and working on as we go through, uh, thinking about, uh, like, just in the last episode, right, last week, when we were talking about, um, you know, casting casting Sauron in the role of the mouth of Sauron, right? So that we can see this sort of story being repeated again later on. Anyway, uh, that kind of thing is awesome. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I, I still, I love that element of the frame. And I think that that is something that, that, uh, uh, that is really cool, but here's my problem. And this has been nagging at me for a little bit, but I've been ignoring it, uh, because I'm, I'm fairly good at that when I need to be. Um, but, as I was reading through the outlines, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't submerge my uneasiness anymore. And that is, we had so much fun in setting up that parallel plot in uh, the frame in season three that we've kind of left the whole original conception 
behind, right? Nobody's telling any stories anymore. And in the season three frame, um, we don't have any tale tellers, really. We just have a parallel story going on that we're sort of flashing forwards to at various points. And I'm not saying that the flashes don't make sense and that they, and I think that it can be, I'm not complaining about it on a storytelling standpoint. Like I think it can be made to work so that it's, we're not just confusing people and they, they can follow what's going on. And, and I think that it can work. But what I am saying is that we've, we've totally left the original conception of having actually stories being told by actual people in the frame. Um, so that those, so that we're, we, we are now making the connections between the old stories and the newer stories. We're making that connection implicit rather than explicit which was kind of the original point of the frame. Um, and so my, my question, the, what, the question that I wanted to, there's a long preamble to my one question, and my one question is, can we reconcile these? Is there, is there, can, uh, do, do, we, do we need to? Um, you know, Nick and Marie, I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on this if you, if you feel that we need to try to do such a reconciliation, if you guys think that the sort of the newer way that we're trying to do the frame is cooler um, than the original one or, or or what your thoughts were on this. But so, can I jump in first? Or, or, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Let me just uh, listening to you talk. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I mean, I think the way it is this season works um, I'm trying to think of it from the point of view of like a viewer, you know, coming, having done right. season one, season two, yay, 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 season three, and the story frame is different. That's not unusual, really, I don't think, for series to do that kind of thing where there's kind of a shift. Mm-hmm. But I do think if we do like this and we decide to leave it as it is, this is how it should be going forward. In other words, we don't revert back to we the story We don't revert telling. back, yeah. Yeah. Right. So if we make the decision to stay with it the way it is, then that's we're doing it. That's it for mm-hmm. the next 30 seasons. Mm-hmm. That's all. OK, um, there are a couple of things that. So basically this season, we had kind of the opposite problem that we had last season, which right. last season we didn't really have a lot of actual storytelling so much as references to things, because we realized pretty quickly that Arwen kind of should already know this stuff. It wasn't, we're not informing Arwen about, you know, about what was happening in Valinor. She, there's no way in 3000 years that she hasn't heard this already. Right. Right. Um, So we, we had kind of already shifted away from the storyteller model last season. Um, This season, there was so much stuff that people wanted to have happen in the frame. And you have these tiny little, you know, maximum five minute bits right. on either side of the episode to do this in. Right. Um, that the only way to do that and be, to be able to set it up emotionally over over time. So basically there's like an episode's worth of stuff that takes place in the frame over the season. And you have to you have to spend time with characters, for example, like the character of Hamilcar, in mm-hmm. order for it to matter when he dies. Otherwise right. nobody cares. Right. So we we like I said we kind of had the opposite problem that we yes. had last year. Yes, in that yes. there was more, too much stuff happening. Um, whereas last year was a much more internalized drama within what was going on with Arwen. Yeah, that was very difficult to break out. Well, and especially since as I recall, I mean, because you mentioned one of the issues, right? Was that unlike 
you know, with the education of Estelle, we didn't have a situation where somebody, you know, is ignorant and, and their ignorance is being filled in by these stories. And so it would seem a little bit weird for Galadriel and Celeborn just to be like, what does tell you about how the the elves once went to Valinor? Like, as you say, obviously, she's going to know this uh, already. And so now I thought that was, f- the you know, the way that we did that was sort of talk about how their reflections on what happened back in the first age are relevant to the, you know, the concerns that Arwen has, you know, the sort of the, the issues that Arwen is wrestling with. And so thinking about their stories in that sense, like not as here's some new information for you, Arwen, but like here is like to show how, you know, the, the, the sort of internal struggles that you are going through right now are but a part of the in- internal struggles that the elves have gone through uh, since the very beginning, um, and that their stories sort of show that. As I recall, we were also a little bit concerned that uh, we, in the frame in season two, there wasn't anything happening. Like, we didn't want to just have, like, and now... Arwen engages in more conversations with Aragorn, with, with not with Aragorn, with uh, Galadriel and Celeborn, right? Um, uh, that, that, that nothing was going to happen because the other mm-hmm. thing is that we did have mostly conversation happening in season one, but at least we had conflict there, right? We had Gilrein and Elrond not seeing eye to eye. And so the conversation was still in that sense a little bit more, there, there was more at stake, right? There was, there was actual drama and resolution, even just in the interpersonal. Whereas Arwen and Galadriel and Celeborn, like, yeah, there are different perspectives and things, but it's there, there wasn't that same kind of drama to resolve. So, um, the, you know, if, if the whole frame, ar- if the, the plot arc of the frame of season two was nothing other than Arwen is kind of thinking about some things and has a series of conversations in which she works some of these things out and maybe she, you know, kind of comes to a sort of new resolution about stuff at the end of the se- by the end of the season. That's still not a very compelling arc. So that's why we we ended up sending her out on walkabout and 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 introduced more action essentially to the to the frame, especially in the second half of the season. And I feel like that's kind of the birth of what then happened in season 3, right? As we began to to have more more parallel action and less merely sort of storytelling uh, um, conception. Well, I wonder. Yes. I, I was. I. The it, it, we are kind of caught in a hot rock and a hard place, right? Which is that um, if we don't do any storytelling of that type. It sort of begs the question of why are we doing the frame story at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, be- especially since the intention is for the show to run up, up, up through and even past the period of time being portrayed in the frame. So it's like, why are we doing it? Na- you know, we could just wait until we get to it. Right. Um, so there is, there is that, that if we don't do it at all, it begs the question. On the other hand, my concern is that that if we slavishly follow that. Um, it's going to get really tiresome really fast. So uh, wait, yeah. um, one, one thing we did in season three is one of the episodes is storytelling. So um, episode four, the uh, foundation of Menegroff, teenage Aragorn tells that story to some of the younger Dunedain children within the episode. Like right. that's the frame in that episode. So we can still bring the storytelling back in occasionally or intermittently, even if we step away from it here, I think. That's actually a really interesting idea, Marie, to kind of 
not to be thinking of, okay, no, we must slavishly have somebody telling a story. Like, it, a story must be told in every frame, you know, in every frame of every episode, or else the frame is a failure. Like, that is the only purpose of the frame, is for it to be a vehicle of storytelling. Um, we could, I think, back away from that, but by just touching base every now and again, making sure that we do have that kind of, as I, as I said before, not just an implicit connection between the the older story and the newer story, but an explicit connection. That, that seems to me an important thing. Um, and so maybe just doing it a couple times during the season to sort of show how the frame is explicitly rooted in, uh, uh, in, in the other, you know, in the older version. I don't know. What, yeah. What do the rest of you think? You know, Dave, do you, do you think I, it's I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. I, th- I think that's, I think we should do it when when it's natural and you know you know like when, when it fits and it's well suited to the to the to to doing it that way to the frame story as well as the the first stage stories we're portraying um i think i think we should do it when it when it's natural and we should maybe we should be making an effort to um to to make sure we're looking for opportunities to do it and not just completely forget it um, but I, I don't think we should hold ourselves to having to do it all the time because I, I think I think it'll just become more and more difficult to to, to force it, and and also as a storytelling um, um, uh, as a storytelling sort of um, uh, strategy, I think it'll get a little little exhausting. Right. 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 Yeah. One suggestion that I might have for future uh, frame. Uh, stories of seasons is that maybe we don't introduce characters in a season in which they're going to die because that means that we have to we have to get people to like them at least to some degree which was pretty tough with Hamilcar because we were setting him up as an antagonist to sell so we basically had to create a situation where He's an antagonist of Estelle, but we get why, and we understand what his problem is, which was, which is very nuanced. So you yes. have to spend time developing that. Yeah, instead of I, I, yeah, no, I think you're right, Nick. I think that that the real issue there, right, is that I think that I think is just a question. That's not really a conceptual. What are we doing with the frame question? I think that's more of a we. You know, when we, the execs, were talking about the the frame story at the beginning of the season, I think we got carried away, right, in the in sort of the drama of uh, what we were imagining with you know with the young Aragorn story there, um, and because I mean when you look at the frame, like if you go back and look at our notes for the just when just our frame episode when we were going through that. That could totally be a season on its own, right? I mean, there's the, it would be there's slightly less content, of course, than the Silmarillion content of season three, but it could totally, without too much effort, be expanded into an entire show on its own, and that's probably a bad sign, right? I mean, if we're doing that, that that probably suggests maybe we're biting off more than we can really chew uh, with the the frame there, um, and I think that that that's a really good idea. That's a really good example, um, you know, trying to do that kind of story where we introduce new characters, you know, set up, set, set them, set him up as an antagonist, have this really pretty complicated kind of political and interpersonal situation that Aragorn and Hamilcar and, and uh, Halberd are in. And then 
you know, bring that to a crisis and then Hamilcar dies and, 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 you know, Aragorn has this whole sort of change of thought. That's a lot to try to accomplish in five minutes per episode over 13 episodes. I mean, that's, that is, that's maybe, that was maybe a little over ambitious. Um, we ended up having to pretty much cut out the Hobbit storyline. Yeah. So yeah, that's the Shire surprising. is there as a backdrop, but but there's no interaction with, at this point anyway, there's no interaction with the Hobbits in yeah. the script outlines as written. And that's very yeah. sensible. Again, because I, just, yeah, even just that's, even just the story I was just talking about, the Hamilcar, you know, the Dunedain story is more, I think, probably than enough uh, for the frames. And then, of course, yeah, we wanted to do this whole other story. So I think we got we got fairly far carried away, I think, in talking about the frame. And that's that's okay. It's good for us to be thinking about that and aware of that and uh, reflecting on that prior to next season. We have, we have plenty more seasons to make very different mistakes. So Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the Hobbits can show up later. No exactly. worries. Plenty of plenty of time. Um, so now Mike was asking, uh, you know, the question is, can we still imagine doing this kind of frame setup in season 15? Yes, absolutely. Again, not the same thing, right? And that's the, the thing that I think is really cool and provides the really cool opportunities with the frame. In a sense, of course, the frame is new, is fresh every season because we're not just marching along directly in parallel right we're we're kind of jumping to different characters and different concerns we are we're not necessarily gonna jump wildly i think in time but um we're gonna have we're gonna be showing a different way and in a different context in which those stories are coming you know those old stories of the silmarillion stories are coming into contact with you know sort of third and fourth age realities um so yeah i i absolutely think that we can um uh, we can do we can do that whole thing. Now, Marielle brings up another really important point, which is the next thing I wanted to raise, and that is, of course, the danger. And we did talk about this a little bit at the time earlier this season when we were doing the season three frame. Uh, but you know, it's worth coming back to again as we're thinking about this concept and how we're going to move forward with it. And that is what we do when we get around to this story. You know, we're going to get to the young Aragorn story, of course, in the main body of uh, the show down the road, right, in 15 years. But still, it would come around in theory. Um, so we need to be prepared conceptually for how we're going to handle that. We, we don't want to spoil our future shows completely, right, by telling the whole early Third Age story here uh, in in small version in the frame. We want the opportunity to tell the long... You know, I said that the frame could theoretically be a whole season. We would want it to be, in fact, a whole season uh, down the road um, or something like it. Uh, so we need to think about how we do that. Do you guys have any thoughts? I mean, I know you guys have thought about this too. Anybody have any thoughts and suggestions about how specifically we can avoid that kind of spoiler issue? Well, I think that as long as we can avoid, as long as we can get off of Aragorn by the time he's hunting down Smeagol, uh-huh. I think we'll probably be okay. Um, no, we're, that we're, there's plenty. Of- yeah. Okay. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think I think that we probably will want to have an episode of the adventure, or not an episode, a season of the Adventures of Young Aragorn as Thorngill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so just that what would I was be material say, right? for a season yeah. of itself. Yeah. So up until that point, it's all frame. And then the rest will be in a season. So we will have to use other frame characters after that point in Aragorn's life. But we still have several seasons worth of Aragorn in a frame 
that we could play with without ruining that, I think. Right. Because we'll have Bilbo in the Shire, we can have other elves, we can have other frame stories. Right, right. No, that's that's exactly it. I mean, clearly the Thoringill stuff, you know, the... the um, because it's and and yeah and yeah yeah so Nick that's just exactly what I was uh, gonna add there um, just what Marie said even before the hunt for Smeagol I mean clearly we need to involve that but the Thoringill story um, Aragorn going to Rohan going to Gondor even exploring in the east and then the you know the hunt for Gollum um, that stuff clearly we want to be part of the main story Aragorn gets, you know, his ranger training, you know, Aragorn, um, learns, you know, learns the skills that he's going to have later on in life, you know, learns the, you know, learns the lore and, uh, and develops the skills that he's going to like, that doesn't have to be within a major, uh, within a regular season. And it's actually kind of nice to have the frame to be able to touch on those things. Um, and to bring the viewers into contact with the life of young Aragorn so that they are ready for it when we get around there and that we don't have to do, um, make up a whole lot of material because of course, historically speaking, there's not much that happens, uh, in that era. Uh, and so if we were going to be doing plot, we'd have to be just totally, you know, we'd have whole seasons of stuff where we're just completely making up storylines, which is not the end of the world. Um, but uh, but it's kind of nice to be able to do that in the frame. So in in that sense, the frame kind of lets us um, uh, kind of have our cake and eat it too, you know, in that way. In that way. Um, yeah, yeah. And Mike, yes. So we will have a frame around Thorong Guild too, absolutely. But the thing is, of course, it shifts as time goes on, right? So as the main storyline is moving forward in time, so is the frame period moving forward in time. Just as now we have the pre-Lord of the Rings time period, right? As all of our our characters are still in the very early stages of coming to the place where they're going to be in the Lord of the Rings story, and we show the way in which the Silmarillion tales right impact and influence and help to shape and form them both their own you know lives and thinking of their own character but even their own stories in some ways um so later on we're going to show how this stuff how the 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 lord of the rings stories right in the earlier stuff the hobbit stuff and the thorngill stuff and things like that um how this late third age story is in fact going to be shaping things later on right so we will have uh we'll have a lot more sort of, I think, uh, fourth age retrospective stuff in the frame. Um, so we will have the frame of King Alessar, you know, we'll have some King Alessar and, uh, and his, uh, kids frames. We'll have, you know, uh, uh, Mayor Gamgee frames, uh, and things like that so that we can show how the stories of the late third age are part of that continuum bringing forward uh, into the court. And again, the, the emphasis will shift right in the frame um, as it'll be more of a retrospective. It'll be, you know, I'm thinking here of Gandalf's words to Aragorn about how one of the things he'll be doing is keeping alive the memory of the, of the, of the age that was right. That's going to be more, um, that's, that's going to be more of the, uh, um, uh, uh, of the, the, I think the emphasis probably in the, um, in the frame, but, but yeah, there's, there's still plenty, plenty there to do. Um, uh, interesting. Yeah. M- Mike suggests we could have, uh, 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 
King Amir uh, telling his son about Thorongil. We totally could do that. And Marielle, you are absolutely right that uh, we should have... Uh, Marielle is suggesting Denethor talking to young Boromir as the Thorongil frame. That is also really attractive. Another thing, Marielle, that your suggestion makes me think of, we totally need a Faramir and Gandalf frame, right? Uh, Gandalf telling stories to young Faramir. That totally needs to happen at some point. I don't know which season we want to have be the Gandalf and Faramir season, but that really does need to happen. Um, Yeah. So it sounds like we can go back to the storytelling when it's appropriate, like when there's children on screen and things like that. Exactly. But, but even step there, away it from it in a model be... where we... Yeah. yeah. In this model, we've already introduced Aragorn in the season one frame, so we're kind of stepping away from it for now. Yeah, yeah. and Yeah, exactly. And, and even then, it doesn't have to be slavish. It doesn't have to be, again, every single episode framed by somebody starting a story. And we actually uh, have... Aragorn telling us one of these stories himself in an episode. So we establish that this is stuff yeah. he already knows. Yeah. So nobody's going to be sitting there going, oh, why aren't we telling Estelle about all of this stuff? Because <laughs> right. well, he, obviously he's already heard it. Right. Because right. he's moved past that point in his education. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that that was, that was very, that was very cunning of you guys to, uh, to kind of shift things around that way. Um, so that we don't just have like, the education of young Estelle as this continuous ongoing thing. Uh, of course, he is learning, and, and it is about his learning, but uh, in the context of his lear- of his his own development, you know, and the learning process that he's going through in the frame of season three, uh, bringing him in as the actual teller of a tale there, I think is, is, is really smart. I think that's really fun. Um, and so, Marielle, exactly. We'd have even even in episodes where we do have the, or even in season frames in which there is an explicit, um, you know, pedagogy of the younger generation kind of uh, 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 kind of context, right? Whether it's you know Mayor Gamgee telling stories to his own enormous brood of children, or um, you know one of the kings, be it Aragorn or Aemir or whoever it is, um, you know, telling stories to to the younger generation. Whether you know, even back when we have you know Gandalf talking to young Faramir or young Boromir being being educated, um, any of those things. I agree, Mario. We still even there. We we mix that with with parallel action um, uh, to so that we don't just have the storytelling. I really do feel that when we get to uh, the final of the two Return of the King seasons, obviously, um, that that should be told by an ancient but unnamed hobbit who we reveal in the final episode is Sam Gamgee as he gets on the ship yes. to travel to Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that clearly the final scene of the final episode has to be Sam handing over the book and getting on the boat, right? Um, yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and that would be kind of Frodo alone with his servant indeed. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That would be fun. Cause of course, by the way, I totally think that it was, that was, it was Sam who wrote that line. You know, Fro- Frodo alone with his servant, like that. That like that's totally a Gamgee insertion. I am. I am. I, I am convinced. Uh, um, 
There's no way that Frodo would have characterized it that way, right? There's no way that Bilbo would have characterized it that way, but Sam totally would have characterized it that way. Um, yeah. yeah. He couldn't erase what Frodo wrote about in the Lord of the Rings, but he could sure as heck put it down in this summary. <laughs> That's right. That's right. When he's doing the overview. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, cool. All right. So now I think this is I think this is a good plan. You know, the, I mean, obviously this doesn't mean that we you know we scrap what happened in season three. I just want to make sure that we're thinking about it because I know that for me it was more of a kind of a shift. You know, it was more of a, a, a getting carried away with things, and and I want to make sure that we're being conscious and that we're not losing the you know the, the 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 end that we were hoping to gain by the frame obviously if you know because there were always the challenges right there were always the 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 questions is this just too confusing like why should we tell two stories when we could just tell the one story there's plenty to tell in the one story um you know are we just going to uh, uh kind of muddy things up by jumping back and forth between the third age and the first age and of course there've you know been people who have been against that from the beginning um so I want to make sure that we're getting the benefit of doing that and not just overcoming the difficulties. Uh, so that's good. All right. I feel better. I feel better about the frame. I feel like I can go on now. I, I was, I, again, I was, I was, I was having troubles. I'm like, okay, I I'd had a vague sense that we needed to talk about this, but then as I was reading through the outlines, I'm like, okay, no, I need to talk about this at the beginning or I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to be easy in my mind until we have this conversation. So Thank you guys for um, feel better. I feel better. I totally feel better. Thank you. I, I will remind you of this during the second session of season four when you guys are discussing the frame. Just say, yeah, yeah, no, Great. exactly. That's and and so now, but now I feel I feel equipped to uh, uh, to, to to think of that, you know, and to to, to do that conversation. So uh, that'll be good. All right, I've got an idea. How about we talk about the outlines? You guys want to talk about the outlines? Yes, please. Sounds okay, Sounds like let's, a talk, let's talk about the outlines. All right. Uh, so at the top, Marie has included the link uh, to the script outline so you, you can find them. Remember, I was showing you guys how to navigate to that on the forums. Go to forums.signumuniversity.org. There's the Film Film Forums, uh, and you'll see that you can you can work your way through the, the, the script, season three uh, uh, threads, and find uh, the... Uh, the full text of these. Um, okay. Episode one, the rebellion of the Noldor. So, uh, uh, Marie, you want to kind of, or Marie or Nick, both, you want to kind of walk us through, through, uh, this outline a little bit. What was your sort of thinking? What are some things that you guys particularly sort of struggled with when it came to kind of making, the concepts that we worked through into a, into a story, what were some of the things that you guys were, were most focused on or, or struggling with in this, in this episode? Um, one thing I wanted to make sure is that we gave a fitting send off to some of the characters we weren't going to see again as we left mm-hmm. Valinor. And obviously that's not the Valar in this episode, but right. it is some of the elves. So uh, we made sure we had a specific scene for Indus to leave and we gave her something to do um, at the funeral of Finway to just remind everyone of who she is before we ship her off. Um, and same with Nerdinelle's end to her marriage with Feanor, yes. because it seemed important to give them time to discuss one-on-one on screen, apart from all the drama of what was going on. 
Yeah. Um, other than that, it was really an issue of trying to build up to the oath that we we knew the conversation that was going to happen. The question was um, how to get all the characters there and whether whether or not everyone knew that was going to happen or if it was a surprise or, you know, how to develop that concept of let's rebel and go to Middle Earth. Right, right. Right. In in addition, um, one of the things that was kind of concerning about that conversation in particular was that we needed to hear voices that were not necessarily gung-ho on this idea, but we also needed to make sure that nobody outright challenged Feanor. Yes. Because nobody does, and... Is he going to let that stand? Like, if Anor feels like this person is clearly not on board with the plan, he's going to get he's going to get rid of them. He's going to make sure they don't go. You know that that's not something that we see happening. So yeah. we had to make sure that even if there was dissent in that conversation, it was at best muted. Absolutely. No, it's it's a huge challenge. You know, and one of the things that I've been so much more sensitive to over the course of season three here, um, and I think that I think the reason I, I, I've been trying to figure out why is why have I been so much more aware of this issue in season three than in season one and two. The issue that I'm talking about is the narrative difference between not just between screen adaptation and book. Right. But but genre of book. Right. Uh, It's one thing to adapt to the screen a novel. Right. But to adapt a story like the Silmarillion, which is a very big picture synopsis of events, much more than it's an actual account of what people are thinking and saying. Um, there's a huge intermediary step that you have to do in order to put that on the screen. Right. Because you can't you can't put like fundamentally, I mean, I've joked uh, through our History of Middle-Earth series in Mythgard Academy, I've been joking that, you know, as he developed, as the Silmarillion developed after the post-Book of Lost Tales uh, uh, period of the development of these stories, the genre that Tolkien kind of found a home in was the plot summary genre. I mean, the Silmarillion, the modern Silmarillion literally began as him writing a plot summary for somebody uh, to, to send to them so that they could have an overview of what happened in the history of the First Age. And... Um, and that developed, right? So that what, what was actually like supposed to be like an abstract, right? Um, he then revises and expands and develops and, and, and makes a thing of it, right? Makes a whole book out of that. And that becomes the Silmarillion uh, in the style that we have. So when, you've, when, when what you're starting from is that kind of overview plot summary, there is so much that you have to do. And so, and, you know, Nick, I'm coming back to the specific points you were just making there um, in the book, right? We're told that Fanor makes a speech and that the hearts of the Noldor were, you know, set aflame by his words. We're also led to, like, understand in a general way that not, not all the Noldor thought the same way that he did. And yet, in the plot summary description of events, we just get, like, and the Noldor went with him. Almost all of them. Not, all, not quite all of them. Some stayed behind, but... They they kind of went with him, and so these questions of, okay, yeah, but who said what? Did nobody said anything? Like that, we know there are some people who are resistant. What were they thinking? What were they saying? How did that conversation go? And because if you be, if you begin to start 
really thinking about the character, for instance, of Finarfin. I really like the character of Finarfin that you guys developed in this episode, by the way. That was one of my favorite things of this episode, showing his character, right? That he's not just a weenie, you know, he's not just diffident, you know, he's he's not just less bold than everybody else. Um, it would be super easy to make Finarfin just look like a milksop, right? Um, and certainly Feanor's going to characterize him that way, most likely, but, um, but still, knowing who he is, right, how can... He wouldn't just not say anything, right? He wouldn't just be like, okay, yay, let's go, Feanor, I'm, I'm with Feanor, right? I'm, I'm, and we're going... And then later on, he's like, oh, actually, wait, I'm not with Feanor, right? Um, it's not going to have happened that way, but how that occurs, you know, all the, like, again, what the characters are thinking, how the dialogue and conversation develops, those are questions in which the Silmarillion, as a narrative, as a genre, is not interested in those questions. It does not give us any answers, uh, or very rarely, these, like, isolated moments of conversation, of dialogue that we get, where we do, where we are, where the narrative does give us insight, um, where it kind of zooms in briefly, but then zooms back out. Um, so, Anyway, I, as, as I said, I was, I was, I was, I've been trying to think, why is it that I'm having so much more of an issue with this, that this is so much more con- constantly in front of uh, my mind uh, in season three than it was in season one and two? And I think my answer to that is that it's because of the lack, the comparative lack of time compression. I don't mean how we're changing the time scale. I mean, seasons one and two, both of them we were kind of telling a big overview plot summary story, right? We'd like, you know, we, we, we were coming in close to the characters and, you know, in moments, but we still had a lot of like between episodes, we have kids growing up, right? You know, there's a the time is passing and we were only kind of stepping into the story every now and again here in season three, we're really for the first time telling a more or less continuous story, um, uh, continuous in time. And so, forcing us to develop consistently, um, not just internally within a particular episode, but from episode to episode, uh, some of this kind of uh, 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 consistency of story development that the the wide expanses of time that we've been covering in seasons one and two didn't really demand of us in the same way. Um, Do you guys think that's right? Are there other factors that you guys think, you know, were involved in that? Well, I think you're you're pretty much spot on there. Um, There's a lot of conflict that's taking place in the background in the Simulian during this time period that is just kind of like you see that it's there. It's very clear that that it's there. But it's not clear at all how it's there or to what extent it's there. You know, Finarvin's going to turn around and walk off in episode seven. Right. And you can't make that seem like a sudden shift yeah. in his personality. Clearly, that doesn't come from nowhere. Be- yeah. Right. Yeah. It might feel like we invented the Sauron Gothmog conflict, but it certainly doesn't feel like we've invented the inter Noldor conflicts. They very much seem to be in the text, just muted and under- understated. Right. Right, absolutely. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and the the Finarfin turning back is 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 the classic example, right? I mean, 
there is no way in which that kind of a moment in the story is not sort of the final bursting forth of a thing that's been building for a long time. I mean, and I don't think there's any, you know, it's, it, it, it would, I would consider it a fairly silly argument if anyone were attempting to argue that, you know, well, the text doesn't say that it was simmering for a long time, and so you guys are just adding stuff to the story by doing that. Like, no, we're not. It's that is obviously implicit in that kind of a moment, right? In that in that kind of action, I don't think that. Uh, um, I think it would be fairly silly to say that when Tolkien does not describe internal conflict within the characters, it's not happening, right? That's not the kind of narrative the Silmarillion is. Um, it has to have happened. And that's one of the things that we get into all the time, right, when we're doing the Silmarillion adaptation. Uh, the things which, in order in order to come to the moments that are described in the text, there are so many other things that have to have happened first, right? You know, that have to have led up, f- up to it in order for those things to occur or for in order for those things to make any sense. Um, and it's fitting all of those things together. Uh, yeah, well, not, to, is, not yeah. to jump ahead too far, but I'm about to jump ahead too far. <laughs> uh, when Feanor burns the ships, Feanor leaves in secret. It's very clear that he leaves, leaves in secret. Why does he leave in secret if his people are the only people on the boats? He could just say, hey, guys, we're leaving. We'll be back for you, wink, wink. And then... You know, when he gets to the other side, suckers and lights the ships on fire. Right. You know, right. like, there's no reason for him to leave in secret. However, what we did was we had an arrangement where they were going to load some of Fingolfin's people onto onto the ships, but Feanor left before that could happen. Right. And we also had to be setting up why that was. We had to be setting up this idea that Fingolfin is not on board with the way that Feanor has been leading. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. No. I mean, that I think is really is really the point. And and it's it's one of the. It comes back to the question of you know what does it mean to be faithful to the text, right? To be faithful to the text cannot, like literally cannot, when you're adapting the Silmarillion, mean to only depict what the text says, right? Because the text is not um, so much of what the text says. It's one of the powers of the Silmarillion as a story, right? Is how suggestive it is. It suggests volumes and volumes of story in a single sentence, right? Uh, and Nick, that's a really neat little example, right? The fact that Feanor leaves secretly, there is there is like a wealth of drama behind that sentence, and it's not spelled out, right? We uh, we have to sort of supply that in our own imaginations uh, as we read the story. Everybody who reads the Silmarillion does that to some extent or other, if the story means anything to you. And frankly, I think that this is one reason why often people, for, like for the people for whom the Silmarillion falls flat... A lot of people, you know, the, the, you know the, the many, many people who have attempted and failed to read the Silmarillion. Um, to some extent, of course, it, it's a question of like it's confusing, and there are so many names, and and like the you know that of Balerion and its realms is boring. And I'm not saying that those things aren't issues, aren't real issues for people. They are, but honestly, I think that a big part of it is that they're, they're wanting sort of expecting, and I know this was my issue, uh, uh, you know, when I first tried to read it when I was 14, um, it doesn't supply you everything, right? The, you, you are not merely the, the sort of 
passive recipient of a story. Um, the Silmarillion is so suggestive and, and, and it opens up these vast imaginative vistas, but you've got to be ready and willing and prepared to go there yourself, right? In order for any of that to have the kind of power uh, that it really can have. And so, yeah, so when we're doing this, we've got to, part of what we have to do is just make that real, right? We've got to, we've got to do a bunch of that work ourselves. Um, we can't just simply be as suggestive as the Silmarillion. You can't do that kind of plot summary uh, in, 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 in film structure. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not a novel. And that, and that, that is why, you know, um, uh, Marielle, as you're suggesting, that's why, you know, I have been, I, I, I've been so much more aware of the, um, um, uh, of the, that kind of translation, uh, that needs to happen. Um, anyway, so that was a sidetrack that I got on in connection with you guys talking about setting up the, so I'm trying to, this is me trying to help to restore your train of thought that I completely derailed. Um, you, cause you guys this were podcast is just one long string of sidetracks. <laughs> it really is. It's like 90% sidetrack and 10% substance. Uh, so, um, cause you guys were talking about building up to the oath, right? What are other people thinking? What are other people saying? And how can we both develop their characters with some kind of integrity for their characters without derailing the action? Cause you can't have people standing up and just being like, no fan or forget about it. Like we're not going and we're not, we don't think like you and we think you're crazy. What's more? Uh, cause they didn't do that. Right. That didn't have, there were some people who stayed behind, but not very many and everybody, including F- uh, even Finarfin went along. Right. So, so how do we how do we bring them along uh, while um, while having them uh, still again maintain their own their own character? So yeah, I thought I thought that that action was really interesting in uh, uh, in this episode. I think we gave Rumil a voice of dissent um, yes. in the in the in the, uh, in the oath taking itself or like the conversation leading up to the oath taking because a we knew he wasn't going we know that Feanor already doesn't like him so like there's any number of things that we could we could pin that on and then we don't have to see him again we don't have to deal with the fallout of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah exactly we did get uh Rumo was a really fascinating opportunity uh to be able to give the give an actual firmly dissenting voice um which yeah doesn't have the consequences of uh, for the for for the future story because as you say we don't need him. Galadriel was another really delicate dance in this episode, right? Um, because she is in one of the most awkward positions. You know, Finarfin, as I said, is tricky, uh, but Galadriel in some ways is even harder, right? Because Galadriel making Galadriel on the one hand think very like Feanor in a sense, while um, being still personally very opposed to him. Um, I mean, that's a balance that Tolkien himself never fully worked through, uh, really. So uh, that makes it sort of especially interesting and challenging. Um, yeah, the, the the one thing that I found hardest, I think, um, and, you know, I'm not sure 
exactly how it would come out. I mean, of course, at the end of the day, these are still outlines and not full scripts. Um, so, you know, we'd have to see sort of how the conversation went. Galadriel's stated desire to have realms in Middle-earth. That's one of the things that I think is still really hard to execute. Um, and I really liked, I really appreciated how you guys were... Um, trying to balance that, right? Trying to bring that in with still her, having her oppose uh, Feanor. Um, I was... Of all of the moments in episode one, I think those were the conversations I was having the hardest time imagining. You know, like, what does she actually say? She can't really say, like, I want to rule! I want to be... I want to be in charge! Like, how would she articulate it? What is it? In other words that we have Galadriel wanting, right? What is her desire? What is her... And do we have... Are, 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 we, are we imagining a gap between her stated desire and her real desire? And if so, how do we communicate that? I, I kind of wanted to put a little bit more pressure on the, on the Galadriel thing. Right. And a part of this is kind of our modern... a rather modern understanding of ruling. You know, because we tend to think of somebody who feels like they should rule there's something wrong with that person intrinsically whereas people ages and ages and ages past didn't necessarily think that at at, you know of everything um i mean that actually is a pretty old idea the the argument of who makes a good bishop is the guy who says but i don't want to be bishop (laughs) like that's the guy you want my philosophy of leadership and that's a very medieval and yes. even more medieval time period view. Yeah, yeah within the church, but there's certainly an idea of the of the right, the divine right of kings and the divine right of the noble class, right. which Galadriel is a member of. And well and here as well we get into the whole human versus elf thing, which comes up at, you know, several points during the season as well, right? That what does it mean when an elf like Galadriel says that she wants to rule a realm. We're not talking about political power, right? If she were to say that, like, I would like to rule a realm at my own will, that sounds like a purely political statement, right? Like, I want to have power over other people. I want to boss other people around. That's what I really want, right? And that, there's no way in which that doesn't sound sketchy, right? I mean, anyone who is motivated by the desire to boss other people around, like, that's a bad sign. Pretty much universally in Tolkien, that's a bad sign, right? Um, And yet... Being a ruler is not a bad sign. Um, uh, I, Nick, exactly as you say, like kingship is not a bad thing, especially among the elves. But of course, we also have to remember back to season two and the whole, like, what is the purpose of the elves and what are they called to do? Like, Goadriel coming to Middle-earth and helping to establish a realm and to, to, you know, to do essentially what she's going to eventually do, right? Which is set up a little mini Doriath of her own, right? For her to do for a realm what Melian and Thingol are doing for Doriath, well, that's not bad, right? Because it's not just about bossing other people. It's not merely political. Yeah, well, it makes me think of the the scene in Lord of the Rings when um, when Aragorn meets Aemir for the first time. I didn't think this way, and he says, no. and he stands forward, and he claims he basically gives him his resume, right? And he he is basically stating outright, "I am the rightful king." Right, right. And 
in the movie, they clearly avoided that. And I feel like one of the reasons the way they did that is they were trying to shy away from the, the idea that Aragorn is this guy who totally thinks that he should be the one in charge. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, Tony's right. Tony is just saying that leadership is an act of service, um, which that's what differentiates good rulers from bad rulers, right? Um, and I agree that that's, a, that's a, an important element uh, in good rulers uh, in, in Tolkien. But see, here also, again, I'm going to come back to the elf versus human thing, right? What does it mean for an elf to be king, right, to be a ruler, compared to what it means for a human to be ruler, right? And I guess if thinking about that, there are two things that I would point to. One is that for humans, it's almost entirely about ruling other humans, right? Who is... But for elves, I don't think that that's the case. Um, I mean, you think about that so many times the way in which the ruler is tied to the realm, not to the peep, not just to the people, but to the land itself, the whole, um, I mean, and I'm not just, I'm not just thinking of like, you know, the, the, the king and the land are one kind of thing, but, but just think about how the elven realms work in, in Tolkien, right? Whether you're talking about Thranduil and Mirkwood, whether you're talking about Goadriel and Lothlorien, uh, whether you're talking about Elrond and Rivendell, whether you're talking about Turgon and Gondolin, um, I mean, I, you know, Thingol and Melian and Doriath, I mean, it's a, it's a very frequent thing that when, when they take a land, when they are, it's not just about them being the boss of the people. It's about them having a relationship with that realm. Um, and they are more closely tied to all of the world. That's why it's such a, a noticeable thing, both in Mirkwood, though Mirkwood is complicated by the whole blackness and shadow thing. But, um, that sense of crossing into fairy, right? That sense of like you are entering, uh, like you've gone to a different place, right? Because that place, like, is connected to the elves who live there uh, and who uh, sort of are in this quasi symbiotic relationship with the land, which is so different from this is the street address of the humans who live here, right? Um, so that's one element in which I think that, that it, it just means something fundamentally, like, essentially different for an elf to have, to rule a realm, right? To be, to be in charge of, of, of a realm. It kind um, of has a little bit akin with the, um, the commandment to go out into the world to have dominion over it. Yes. Not, you know, when God says that he's not talking, saying, you know, take dominion over other people, he's saying to take dominion over the world yes. and take care of it. Yes, and I do actually think that there is something uh, Genesis suggests, right, that the kind of relationship, the kind of authority, uh, the kind of, well, I'll go back to relationship, that human beings had with the land in Eden has been lost. Like, it's one of the things that, that, that you get the sense of, like, no longer are you going to have this, you know, you're going to be just living on the land and, and struggling to get by. It's not going to respond to you in the way that it was set up. So if I agree that we can see, you know, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this sense of, like, this is something that is lost. And I think that Tolkien 
uh, it's one of the things that I think that he he is sort of suggesting that there is this. It's one of the reasons why many of these elf realms are kind of paradisical, right? Because there is something, there is something, at least Eden-like, right? About not not just Eden-like about Lothlorien, but Eden-like about the relationship between the elves and the land in Lothlorien. Um, which humans have lost, right? And humans don't have access to that anymore. Um, so yeah, no, I, that that seems to me that seems to me very re- very very relevant. But of course, it's not just about dominion, right? It's about what nurturing again. Th- back to the season two stuff, right? What were elves meant to be doing in in Middle Earth? Yeah, exactly. The, their stewardship over Middle Earth. Their what teaching, nourishing, developing the way in which, you know, they and the land, I'm thinking of Treebeard's language, right? They were, they, they were supposed to grow together, right? Um, I like Treebeard describing what didn't happen between the ants and the ant wives, right? Um, the, the elves in the land were supposed to grow and develop together. They were, spo- they were supposed to be a blessing one unto another, right? And we see elves being a blessing to the land in those places where they do settle down in, in, in Middle-earth. Um, there was another f- uh, factor that I'm... Th- oh, well, because the other thing that, of course, differs when you talk about ruling a realm, um, and this is something Dominic Nardi is really good in talking about this. Uh, he's I've heard him talk about this at conferences. He's a, uh, uh, been a, a, a Signum student for a while and, and, and involved in a bunch of our conversations, and he's a political scientist, and it's one of the things that he's really interested in, in reading the Silmarillion and in reading the Lord of the Rings and thinking about sort of the politics of Tolkien's world, um, is, of course, like when you have a group of immortal people, the whole political situation is completely different, right? Um, when, you know, points of opposition emerge within your culture and nobody's going to die, these things are never going to go away, right? So that, like, you, you know, you have to be kind of concerned with your popularity polls in a totally different way when everyone's immortal, right? Um, these things are not going to fade. We're not going to have the, you know, things aren't going to ebb and flow over time in the same way that they do in human politics. And of course, thinking from a, uh, uh, from an older, but not just thinking about like from a modern political standpoint, but from like a medieval political standpoint, of course, one of the primary, most important realities of medieval politics is the succession, right? The king is going to eventually die and does he have an heir and who's going to take over and are we going to be plunged into civil war? Um, when everybody's immortal, you don't have that issue, right? We do have, of course, have successions that happen uh, in the Silmarillion, but it's not the same kind of political uh, concern trying to, um, you know, often I, I've gotten this, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the course of my Tolkien professoring over the last 10 years, I've sometimes gotten the question, why does the high kingship of the Noldor go to Turgon from Fingon? Right? Why doesn't it go straight to Gilgalad, um, since Gilgalad is the son of Fingon and Turgon is just his brother? Why? Why? Why does the succession work that way? Um, and really, I think the answer to that question is simply: you're thinking like a human, right? As if there were a regular order of succession. Uh, they, the elves don't have a way; they don't have any reason to set up a uh, like. And this is how the rulership is to be passed down from generation to generation. Like that's not a thing for elves. Um, 
So the whole question of who's going to be king next is just going to be approached in a completely different way for elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we uh, actually had a discussion about that on the message board, that exact question of um, succession within the line of the Noldor. And we pretty much came to the conclusion it would make more sense to show it as a committee meeting to decide, all right, a king has died, what do we do now? <laughs> Rather right. than have some kind of legal secession yeah. in place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like one of those where you have it worked out to like the 50 or 60 people, like the line of succession, you know, because again, who, what elf is going to make contingency plans like that for, you know, a thing which is so unlikely? And in fact, it's still, no matter how many kings die in the Silmarillion, it doesn't make it any less unlikely. We're talking about, you know, a couple deaths over hundreds of years under extreme circumstances. It's still not a common occurrence, uh, even in the, uh, even with the mortality rate of the Silmarillion. Are you sure you don't want to have an election? That could be gripping, don't you would, think? I think that would make for compelling television. Yeah. Stump speeches and everything? The, the yeah. closest thing I could think of in any uh, European human culture was the idea of the, the Witan, or the Wittenbalt, um, which I'm butchering the pronunciation of. But even now, obviously, that wasn't followed through on the way it was supposed to most of the time, but the idea that the aristocracy would get together and choose a new king is not exactly unheard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, you know this this whole conversation is kind of making me excited for uh, for for that scene in Nargothrond where uh, Kelagorm and Kurafin usurp the leadership. Yes, right. Like yes. this is actually going to be kind of fascinating. It's a and that's, big deal. That's almost like politicking. Yeah, yeah. Engaging yeah. in some demagoguery. Definitely. <laughs> to attempt to pull this all back to Feanor, um, his, <laughs> his speech in this episode is mostly anger and grief and revenge against Morgoth and all that. But he obviously had to say some positive things or else right. people wouldn't get excited about it. Like this isn't He doesn't start an angry mob. He starts a group of people who all want to go to Middle-earth. So I think talking about that idea of realms is kind of how he's going to get the Noldor to buy in. Like they have this lovely little city of Tyrion that they all like, but they could have more and different and varied. And him t- talking about that in a really compelling language, we're going to see Galadriel's reaction to his words. And even if she was very shut off from what he was saying before, when he gets to that part, she's on board. Like yeah. it's just, obvious that she is a hundred percent agreeing with everything he says for yeah. that section. Yeah. Yeah. That so we can do something like that without having Galadriel say, yes, yes. Sign me up to rule a realm. Sign me up to rule a realm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do I get to boss lots of people? Cause I'm in, if so, that's what I'm all about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, do you think we should, so, okay. Here I want to be careful Thinking of Galadriel, you know, I, I've been wanting to resist making Galadriel the, you know, pure idealized figure. You know, um, she's a she's a, a complicated and and in some ways kind of, uh, you know, sort of morally compromised from the beginning character, which is you know why her like redemption at the end is going to at very end uh, is going to be, is going to be meaningful. Right. Um, and of course we talked about that, especially in the context of the kinslaying episodes and stuff like that. But, um, but I'm wondering here if we could introduce her as a, 
a distinguishing voice there, right? So Feanor, because you're right, Marie, obviously Feanor has to give a positive vision as well. But even in his speech, his positive vision is still tainted, right, by his envy, by his anger. Um, you know, like, it's one thing to say, we should go and set up realms because it's great, and this is the fulfillment of, like, Elvish destiny, right? Back to season two stuff. This is what we were meant to do all along. You know, it was wrong for the Valar to bring us here. It was selfish for them. They're trying to hold us back from achieving what we uh, want to achieve. But at the same, you know, there's the whole, like, the, the no other race shall oust us element of his speech. And that's that's just, there's no, that's not good. Like, that is, it, it's clear that his own pride, his own uh, uh, envy, even, um, envy of the Valar, envy of the, uh, of, uh, of, you know, any good thing that any others, you know, might have, uh, jealousy over, you know, the jealousy with which he guards what he considers his own prerogatives, all of those things really undermine his vision. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that what ruling a realm means to Feanor is not that pure, lovely vision of, like, elvish relationship with the land that I was talking about, right? Um, so showing that on the one hand, he does he does give a positive vision that other elves, you know, the others of the Noldor can really attach to, but yet his own vision is, is, is tainted, as I say, sort of morally tainted. Um, Galadriel could be a voice for a less tainted... Um, I, I wouldn't want it to be totally untainted, perhaps, but 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 a less tainted version, so that we can we can kind of she can be the the spokesperson for the positive response to the positive element of of Feanor's vision there. Yeah, that works. That works. Okay. Um, other. Any other things that you would want to, you guys would particularly want to draw attention to from episode one? No, I think we're okay. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah, I'm sort of looking through. Yes, the uh, Nerdinelle story is. Uh, uh, it's tough to wrap up her story in one episode at the beginning of this season with as you know large a, a character as she was uh, through season two, second half of season two, um, to leave her behind after one episode is tough. Well, better to do it in the first episode than to do it several episodes in. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you kind of don't want to be messing with your, your cast of characters too much, mm-hmm. um, which we're about to do pretty heavily. So Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay. All right. Let's. Think I uh, I just wanted to say that I <clears throat> I'm intrigued by the mental image uh, or imagining sort of the the on screen image of uh, of the, the the Feanorian army camped outside the walls of Tyrion. Like that's kind of a that's not something I ever imagined or thought about um, in you know in reading the the books. Yes. So I'm. I think that's intriguing. That's kind of a like. Oh wow! They're marching an army on Tyrion. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited. Well, at the time, I was kind of thinking about something that I remember reading about um, in one of I think the first Crusade, when because basically the Byzantine Emperor sent uh, letters to the to the Bishop of Rome asking for asking for help, and the Bishop of Rome, Rome was like, "Hey, why don't we just take over the Holy Land? That'll be that's." That'll help. 
and he winds up with this army that he has no control over parked outside. And they're not really there to put besiege them, but they kind of are. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's it's really complicated. Yeah. And this actually that uh, you know, Dave, this whole issue points up exactly another wonderful example of this whole the Silmarillion isn't a novel thing, right? How many times in the Silmarillion does Tolkien talk about essentially the action of one character, and yet we know that it's like thousands of characters? In like, Feanor does all these things, and like he's accompanied by this largely faceless crowd. I mean, he's got all the his sons, right? But we know there are a bunch of Feanorians, right? There, there are many people who are followers of Feanor. You know, like the people who are running all the ships after the kinslaying, right? And yet, they never get a role. They, 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 we, we forget about them. When you read the description of, the, of, of this scene, right, of the rebellion of the Noldor, of the speech of Feanor and the oath, it could sound like Feanor walks all by himself to Tyrion, right? But he's got people. He's got supporters. And, uh, and, and yet, so yeah, so actually sort of making that real, right? Sh- showing the, uh, you know, and Nick, ha- having exactly as you were describing that kind of tension here, um, where visually it looks like Tyrion is under siege. And I love how that works symbolically, because it is. Like, morally, it's under siege. Uh, and so you, you make the coming of Feanor by showing that. Because it is going to look from the outside, like because they're going to be dressed like a military force. They're coming armed. Because they're prepared to go and take uh, take combat to Middle-earth, right? So they're, they're, they're fully armed and, and fully supplied um, camping outside the walls of this city, which it cannot help but look like a siege. And it isn't, right? Except symbolically, it is, you know, in this almost allegorical way. Uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the virtue and resolution of Tyrion is going to come under siege and is going to be taken uh, by, by Feanor, right? Um, so I love the way that that works. I think that that's really, really cool um, and a really neat way of uh, kind of taking advantage of, of uh, some of those adaptation moments there. But, yeah, so I like that. I like that a lot. Other thoughts, other, other final so- thoughts on, on episode one? Maybe we should get into a second episode during this session. Hey, I was thinking the same thing. Why not go down there and talk about episode two? So, the kinslaying. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, good. Uh, so I like your uh, the notes here. You want to give Olway the opportunity to shine, absolutely, yeah, and to express elvish views, not caught up in Fanor's rebellion. So important. And I really like how you guys worked explicitly in reminders of what Olway's plan was and what the ships were designed for. I think that having the pointedness of that irony, I think, re- works really wonderfully, right? That the Fanorians are committing theft and murder in order ultimately to use the ships of the Teleri for the purpose that they were intended for, which is ferrying the elves back to Middle-earth. So the way in which this is, you know, the the, the, the horrible irony of that situation, I think works really powerfully here um, and just sort of shows you, it, it gives a, a another really strong angle on 
the like the wrongness of the kinslaying, right? That um, and how the extent to which what Feanor is doing is in one sense like a right and justifiable thing. There is good at the heart of it, right? That, it, you know, like, you know, Marie, just like you were describing the sort of the positive vision that Fanor has and that positive vision is not a bad thing. Um, and yet it's been so thoroughly warped and so, uh, uh, so totally, uh, bent out of its shape that it gets twisted into something as hor- as horrible and horrifying as the kinslaying itself. So I thought that that worked really beautifully. I love the old way scenes at the beginning. Um, uh, and the you know the coming of Arwen to to Alqualonde, I thought that that worked really really well. Other thoughts that you guys wanted to uh, to uh, bring up, you know, again issues that you guys were sort of wrestling with, or things that you would want to uh, to to ask us about from episode two. Uh, one one thing I things. definitely have to ask about is. Um, Yarwin. We were talking about her storyline and yes. realized that there was the opportunity to actually kill her when she jumped off the arch rather than just have her escape death in that scene. Um, and we wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on whether you felt she needed to survive this or if she needed to die. We felt that it worked a little better if we killed her, but... Yep. Um, no, I, I, I think we should totally kill her. I'm, I'm I'm absolutely in support of killing off our uh, Arwen. Um, here's the main reason I'm in support of killing off Arwen, and it's not just because I'm totally bloodthirsty and I'm enjoying killing all the characters, but um, it's because of Galadriel. Honestly, um, I mean, all of the the children of Thanarfin, really, but Galadriel especially. Because here's my issue: if Arwen lives. Right? No, let me say it the other way around. If Arwen dies, then it makes it easier, I think, um, for Galadriel to leave. Um, if Arwen, if, you know, so Olwe is killed, um, you know, so Galadriel just like she watches her, like, Fanor kill her grandfather, uh, you know, and. Um, she is then watching the Teleri being killed. There has to be, like, why do any of them continue, right? Why do they go on then? Why doesn't Finarfin turn back then? Why doesn't Goadriel turn back then? Um, especially if Arwen is still alive. Arwen's not going to go, right? She's not going to come along, certainly. Um, under the, under these circumstances, that is to me absolutely I can't compre- I can't I couldn't possibly comprehend that. So, are they Finarfin, Goadriel? Are they going to be like, oh, hey, uh, mom, uh, wife? Yeah. So, gosh, look at that. Um, yeah, Olwe was just murdered, and all your people are killed, and uh, you you've kind of barely escaped from death. Um, by now, like we're out of here. We're going to carry on following the guy who just did all this stuff, right? I mean, that, that there's no way. I can't imagine that they can leave her behind, right? She would be. Um, it would be. It, it would be for them to add abandonment to everything else that had happened, and we set up the kinslaying. I think really cunningly, so that it could be entered into without 
everybody being like maliciously motivated to begin with, right? You know, the the way that we have this whole like tragic unfolding of misunderstandings and and the way that it escalates in ways that are understandable from all sides and and yet turns out to be something horrible and tragic. Um, I think that we did that really well. To have them at the end just walk away from A. Arwen, I mean, oh gosh, that's kind of awful, right? That makes, that puts a level of culpability on Finarfin and Galadriel. Uh, I mean, and the others too, but uh, but our focal, you know, we didn't really focus any uh, uh, attention on like Finrod, for instance, um, in this episode, but that puts a level of moral culpability on Galadriel and, and, and Finarfin that I'm just not really comfortable with. But if she's dead, right? If the Arwen dies, then like the whole, it, they've lost everything, right? Um, the kinslaying is horrible, but in a sense, the kinslaying, rather than being motivation for them to stay, it's, it becomes almost motivation for them to go, right? Like that, that, you know, that life, the life that they had has been destroyed, and so the only hope that they have of anything now lies in front of them and not behind. What's to stay for, right? Always dead. Uh, uh, Alquilande is, you know, like, well, the city isn't, like, in flames or anything. But, I mean, you know, the peace of Alquilande is wrecked, always dead. Arwen is dead. The, you know, uh, Tyrion is abandoned. What's to stay for, right? Um, the only thing that they have left is each other and this hope for the future that Galadriel at least has been the spokesperson for, right? That I can imagine. Like, I can imagine under those circumstances them leaving. But, like, for Galadriel to be like, it's okay, Mom, uh, it's awful and everything, but we're just, um, bye! <laughs> I, I can't see it. I, I, I think she has to die. What do you guys think? Hmm... I, you've, you've, you've stumped us. <laughs> Cause see, I, I mean, there is the issue. I mean, Mario is pointing, of course, like, you know, would the children and indeed the husband of Arwen continue on a, uh, you know, on with a, with a quest and following the, the dude who, you know, killed the, you know, old way. And, you know, this thing that killed uh, Arwen. it's an issue, but see, I'm okay with that actually. Like, they're not going to be okay with this. This is not going to be... Finarfin is not okay with the kinslaying, right? He was never going to be okay with the kinslaying. Um, can I see him going on? Yes. I can see him going on and not being okay with what happened, right? Him going on almost in a kind of despair rather than, you know... Go, it's, it's not that he's reconciled to it. It's not like, you know, either Galadriel or, or Finarfin after the kinslaying are like, well, you know bygones, let's move on, right? That's not the, that's not the thing, right? Um, they are, they follow Feanor out of Tyrion because they are willing to embrace that positive vision that we were talking about with episode one, especially Galadriel at the forefront of that. Now that still, that positive vision hasn't changed, right? Of like what they could accomplish in Middle-earth and what returning to Middle-earth could mean. Um, if anything, what what has happened is like the burning of bridges behind them, right? They they that's all they have of, now. In the case of Finarfin, he's actually going to keep going for the explicit purpose of trying to talk everybody else into not going anymore. Right. Yeah. So he's he's done now. He's After done. the kinslaying, yeah. Finarfin's done. His his 
movement forward is simply because he re- feels responsible to his people and he wants to save as many of them as he can, yeah. not because he still believes in following Fanor. Right, right. I like that. And then Goadriel is kind of the middle ground where she does still have motivation to go on. Um, but she's not going to disagree with her dad either. You know, I mean, like she's going to be, she was already embracing the positive despite at least discomfort with Fanor, right? Now her discomfort with Fanor is going to be well past discomfort. She's going to be into open opposition of Fanor. Um, along with her dad. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So no, I think, I think that that works, but, but again, all of this works better. What I can't conceive of is, is her living and them walking away. Right. There is no way Finarfin leaves his wife behind. Now, again, you know, Marie, you could say that maybe he would temporarily planning always all, all along to come back. Right. Um, but see, I think we have to be a little bit careful. If Finarfin is 100% determined to return to Tyrion. He's just taking the long route. It could undermine the impact of the, you know, the Doom of Mandos when we get that. And because there should, I think, still be some sense in which the Doom of Mandos precipitates Finarfin's turning back. Well, um, yes, the Doom of Mandos is his deadline. It's his um, deadline. He but thinking, he doesn't know about yes. that deadline in advance or anything. He does, but he, he's like, okay, I'm going to try and talk people around. I'm going to try and change things. Once the Doom of Mandos happens, it's like, okay, time's up. Right. I have to go back now. Right. And that's all. Thank you very much, everybody. You've had your chance, and we're, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, but Mariel, I agree. Mariel says if Arwen survives having endured this trauma, Finarfin as a good husband would have to have a reshuffling of priorities. Exactly. I can't imagine him turning to Arwen and being like, okay, um, sorry, wait for a few months slash years. I'm going to go off with him. I'll, I'll be right back. Right? I'm totally going to be back. I just need to get convinced. No, he's going to stay with her. Right? He would stay with her. There's, there's, no, there's no way. that, that would, There's no way that she comes. There's no way he doesn't stay with her. If she lives, I, I can't, I can't, I can't understand psychologically can't understand either one of those things unless we're going to make him, uh, we would be compromising him. Like there's a 0% chance that he does not, that he comes off not looking like a bad husband. If he abandons her even temporarily and then comes back later on. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I think that's, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Ooh, ouch. Ah, telling point. Brianna asks, how many wives have to die during the flight of the Noldor to serve the story's male characters? Ouch. Oh, ah, ooh. Two. The answer is two. (laughs) Uh, yes, two. Uh Uh-huh. Two is not a very high number, Right. But see, this is difficult, Brianna. We've got lots of female characters, right? But we can't get away from the positive stories that are told about all those male characters, right? So we do have to work their stories in. Uh, and there's no question that Finarfin is a more major character in the story than Arwen. I mean, we've we've made, we've realized her uh, 
in an important way, but no, I mean, I acknowledge the point. I do. Um, uh, Margaret Joyce wants to remind us of the uh, Finway's wife problems. Now, that's a season two issue, Margaret. Yeah, that's that's water under the bridge at this one. That totally doesn't count. Yeah. Well, but it, it is the case that when we put this script outline on the message board, um, killing Yarwanov was the most controversial thing in here. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. including the what is Galadriel's role in the kinslaying question, which was vaguely controversial as well. So we didn't want to just kill her off without there being a discussion and making sure that that was the decision everybody well everybody on the exec team wanted yeah yeah um yeah agreed it is but hang on a second i want to push back a little bit more against brianna's comment the death of the wives is not just to serve the story's male characters i mean like it can be contrived it can be construed that way there's no question but I don't think that that is a fair way to describe the story that we are trying to tell. Um, Nick, as you were just pointing out, Elenway dies from a course of action that she was recommending, right? We are not making Elenway, we're not <clears throat> having Elenway just be some kind of back, this is Turgan's wife, of course, be some kind of like faceless background character whose only function in the story is to be like an emotional motivator for Turgan, right? She is going to be the spokesperson of one of the major, like when we have the people of Fingolfin and the remnant of the people of Finarfin deciding to cross the Helcaraxa, she is going to be the voice of one of the like major, like resolutions of the people, right? She's going to be uh, uh, the spokesperson independently on her own, not, you know, not again, like as a, uh, as an attache of her husband, she is going to be one of the spokespeople for one of the things. And, and the course that she recommends is one that has a cost, right? That is going to come at a cost. It's, there's there's going to be a price to be paid to do what she says should be done, right? And she pays that price, right? She is one of the casualties of the course of action that she recommends, right? So that, I think, gives... Um, gives her uh, gives her and her death a uh, an independent significance, which is not merely derivative of her husband. Of course, one of the consequences of that, and one of the reasons that she is chosen, and that is because Turgon is going to be a major character for many seasons, and we do want the death of his wife to mean, you know, we want, we want to think about what specifically does the death of his wife mean? Not just like my wife is dead and I am now sad, but um, how does that fit into his worldview moving on? So yes, in thinking about the surviving character, we're thinking about that. And it's the same in a sense, um, uh, the, the same in a sense with, with Arwen, right? Um, we have Arwen, her death here, um, it's an important thematic and symbolic thing, both the death of Arwen and the death of Olway, in different ways because they have different roles. Um, their deaths, their deaths are the kinslaying, right? In some important ways, they are like the distillation of the kinslaying into the deaths of Olway and the death of of Arwen. 
Um, and again, that it's not just about we need an excuse for Finarfin to act in a particular way, so we're going to drag in, a, you know, a faceless wife for him to motivate him. Again, that would be doing disservice and using female characters simply as a mechanism to support a masculine plot. Um, but I don't think we're doing that with Arwen or with uh, Elanwe uh, there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So... Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Marielle talks about making a female character who should have motives and stories of her own into a mere plot device to forward the plot of a male hero. That's, that's objectionable, right? That's called what, Marielle? That's called fridging? I've never even heard that term before. This is a new piece of vocabulary for me. Fridging? Yeah, you stick them... Yeah, you stick them in the fridge and then stick they're the gone. Fridge. Aha. Okay. Got it. Okay. Right. Uh, it makes them into a mere plot device. Right. Not every minor, minor and or female character death is fridging. You're right. Exactly. And I think, I I personally think that our storyline, you know, whether or not you want to make the argument that Tolkien is doing that in cases, you know, that you, I think you could try to make that case in uh, in, in some places. Um, but I don't think El- with Elenway's death and Arwen's death, we're doing that here. At least... Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, right, so Marielle says, if the death illustrates a theme or consequence or impacts a number of characters, it isn't, it isn't fridging. Um, yeah. Fridging, that's a strange metaphor. Huh. Because is, is it about storage? Permanent storage? Is it... Or is, is it okay, sorry, I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain around the refrigerator metaphor here and i'm not, I'm not um, totally it's from it. it's from tv tropes if you're familiar yeah. with tv tropes.com they yeah. they use a lot of uh terms like that and yeah. it's from there no i mean it's interesting i'm just i'm just trying to understand the 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 metaphorical structure of that piece of vocabulary because i mean it's not like in this case it's not a question of putting them in the fridge it's a question of chucking them in the bin Right. Uh, so, I mean, it's anyway. Okay. Right. I, I, I get it. I get it. Okay. All right. All right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, looks like based on TV tropes, it looks like it has to do with, um, oh, oh, it's, it's a direct reference to a, okay. it's a direct reference to a comic. I got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Right. Great. I see. That's, an an, an infamous Green Lantern story, right, where the female, the dead female, was found in a fridge. Okay. All right. That makes. Yes. If it's a reference, I'm fine with it. If it if it's a, I thought it was simply a metaphor, right? Like, and and as a metaphor, I wasn't understanding it. But okay, if it's a reference, fine, fine. I can accept that. Um, okay, okay. That's that's cool. Um, all right. Um, I guess we're sort of. Fridging a little bit? Nah. No, we're totally not fridging. I refuse to accept that. That is not what's happening here. Again, we're doing we're, we're, we're doing so much more with the with these female characters. Uh, uh, just because these particular female characters are dying does not mean that they're uh, that we're that we're fridging them. You can't say. I mean, so so what does that mean? That like you can't kill any female characters? Um, I mean that uh, that would that would seem 
that would seem no, no. You just you're not supposed to kill off characters pointlessly, and merely um, in order to forward the plot of it. Although, again, see that's that's tricky too. Here's one of the things that I always that I often want to kind of push back against. Here is. Um, Obviously, these are these are really legitimate criticisms, right? And and you can certainly see that there is a lot of this kind of a tendency of you know female characters to be placed on the periphery, you know, uh, only in order to move forward the plot of a male character. But here's the thing: sometimes a protagonist might be masculine, right? Like so often, minor characters are introduced into stories in order merely to further the story of the protagonist, and occasionally that protagonist might be male, and those some of those minor characters might be female. So to say that that could never happen, that one should never introduce a minor female character in order to move, like that creates a, this sort of weird reverse discrimination thing. It reminds me of a, a point, that, and I can't remember the exact context of this. Somebody was pointing this out. Um, in, I think it was an earlier film episode, or maybe it was something else. I can't remember now. I do so many broadcasts, I can't keep it in mind anymore. Um, when we were talking about strong female characters and not wanting to make... The, the, the issue in under discussion was strong female characters and wanting, you know, uh, uh, the female characters not just to be totally dopey uh, and, you know, at the risk of playing into the stereotype of just having sort of like brainless eye candy female characters. Um, and... Uh, and and the, the the question that was put by one of the viewers at that point was so okay so uh, like dumb empty headed person is now a role that's unavailable to any female actor like it's we we can't do that anymore like ever you can never have a female character who isn't strong um, and obviously that's not right right I mean that doesn't make any sense um, we don't want to be so active in trying to avoid negative traditions and negative tropes that we shut ourselves off from really quite plausible, often powerful and perfectly realistic. There are in fact some women who are not strong, like that exists, right? That, that, that's a thing. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, obviously, you know, this, it, it, it's not to try to sweep this under the rug, but we do have to be careful about that kind of like reverse discrimination dynamic as well. The, the point of TV trips is merely to point out the existence of patterns, not right. necessarily to say that they're all bad. Right, right, exactly. So uh, overusing them or misusing them is bad. So it's good to pay attention, but it doesn't mean you can never do any of it. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly. Well, and that's the other that, that that touches on another issue, which I okay, I'll try to get too distracted on this as well. And that is the modern obsession with not following, like doing, like that everything has to be new, right? If you're doing something traditional, if you are following an established pattern, that that's bad, that's uncreative, that's unoriginal, it's not fresh, you know, it's not. And that is such a tired modern point of view that everything has to be different. Sometimes, you know, actually doing things in like received in traditional ways is good, right? And compelling. And it, I mean, we're talking about Tolkien for crying out loud, right? Like, you know, he's like Professor Archetype in his stories. And that's one of the reasons why his stories are, are so powerful. Um, but anyway, um, uh, so... Uh, um, as I say, I don't want to get too sidetracked on that, but it is it is something that I'm that I'm kind of sensitive to as well. Um, okay, all right. 
Um, yeah, as as a as a white male, um, I've had to very often think through things that are that are you know either I'm suggesting or that I'm agreeing with, and say, okay, is this? Am I not thinking through another point of view here? Um, I think that one of the things that we kind of, I mean, I would say that the death of our, our heroine in this case is fridging, but it's fridging for Galadriel. It's not necessarily fridging for a male character. Because we're going to leave Finarfin. He's not going oh, to be the well, story that makes for a while. That makes it better, no, yeah. Well, it, well, what I'm saying, <laughs> we can, we can better, only kill off female characters as long as it's in service of other female characters. <laughs> well, I'm specifically addressing Bree's question, is that we're not actually doing that. Right, exactly, exactly. No, I, I think I think that's true. It's funny, uh, on the Twitch chat, uh, Oakwig is pointing out that, of course, uh, the whole question of fridging is a little bit ironic when we're talking about a Lenway who, of course, is going to fall into the icy gulfs of the Helcarax. So it's a little <laughs> hard. It's a little hard to avoid the accusation in a purely literal sense. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess we're uh, okay, we're really icing a Lenway rather than fridging her exactly. She goes far beyond the fridge. Oh. Uh, but um, yeah, um, yeah. Um, Freezering, <laughs> freezing. Here we are. It's, that's that's it, right? Yeah, literally. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Margaret Joyce also points out that it would also retroactively inform the Arwen situation. Uh, that is like the Arwen Galadriel relationship. If Galadriel's own mother dies when she's you know com- like comparatively young, you know, s- towards you know so close to the beginning of her career, right? Um, and so it, it would give a, a different kind of poignancy to that. Now, obviously, she's not Arwen's mom. She's Arwen's grandmother. Um, but still, you know, she's especially with the departure of Arwen's mother, you know, there's there's certainly a way in which Galadriel is kind of in in loco parentis there. You know, she's the mother figure uh, in Arwen's life. And so, yeah, it does add uh, um, a, a new sort of level of psychological depth to that relationship, knowing Galadriel's mom's story. If I could come back to a purely mechanical question, still thinking about Arwen's death. What's her cause of death? What does it say on Arwen's death certificate? How does she die? She jumps. We had her jumping, right? So I remember this. We had her on the bridge, right? And we had her diving. How is she dying? I want to make sure that her well, death yeah, isn't... She's still drowning. You want to make sure she doesn't drown to death? Well... I just want to make sure it works, right? I, that that her her cause of death can't be, especially since, as I was suggesting, there's a way in which her death is like a distillation of the kinslang, right? And so, therefore, her cause of death has to have a sort of symbolic weight, right? It has to make sense symbolically. So, so example, Mike, falling into a shark's mouth, that's a good example of a bad death for Arwen. That would not work at all. But sorry, go ahead. So what we did with her is we had her see the host of Fingolfin approaching one side of the arch and Mytheros coming up the other side. Mm -hmm. So her archers are trapped, essentially. And she then jumps off the arch into the water, but she strikes a rock on the way down which is why Galadriel is immediately thinking that her mom might have just died and runs to save her. 
because we figured that she's a good swimmer and arch isn't so impossibly high that you can't dive off of it right into a harbor which would be plenty deep water so there would be no reason for her to die unless she were struck by a boat or a weapon or a rock on the ledge or something on in the process of jumping in the water yeah, I agree drowning wouldn't work, both from a practical standpoint. As you say, you've got to think that the, the Teleri are reasonably good swimmers. And um, and this, again, symbolically, that doesn't seem to work. It's, it's not the sea that's going to kill them, right? Um, if she hits a rock or something, though, I mean, although this could, you know, be a salutary public service message about diving into shallow waters... Um, that seems anticlimactic. Or like, and it can't be. It can't be under the water, the rock. Otherwise, they, why are the Teleri using this as yeah, the entrance? Exactly. Way? I mean, so this is the channel that the ships are coming through. Yeah, it has to be deep water there. But similarly, how could she be near any other rocks? Right. So I have a. Well, the arch itself could be rather wide. So when she goes to jump off the arch, she might not make it all on the way down or something. But if it's. I think conceptually I have a hard time with her dying an accidental death. You know? Like it's... Her death can't be the result. I mean, it's not exactly an accident because of course she's dying because she's diving and she's diving because she's been put in this situation, but I don't think that Arwen's death can be a death by misadventure. I mean, the arch could just be high enough that hitting the water could kill her. It's not. It doesn't have to be that high. Like that. Right. I mean, humans can who, safely dive off of 115 feet in shallow water. So, yeah. I mean, it, it would have to be pretty high for to die from impact. People jump off of bridges all the time and die from it, though. No, I mean, yeah, we can do that. But still, that's anti. Again, then her cause of death would be like, what causes her death? The sea. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't want the ocean to cause her death. That doesn't seem. To work. I mean, unless she hits a passing ship, I don't see. You know. The other option is just for her to take some sort of weapon and fall from the bridge instead of diving. Um, uh, Mike and Tony both are suggesting independently here that she could die from some kind of friendly fire, which would be interesting. Um, it's possible we could have Fingolfin and people who are with him kill her when they attack. It seems a little unlikely Fingolfin would actually kill a sister. Myvros would be a better would be a better option for that since he's coming up the other way. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Mm. I kind of like having Mytheros's people kill her is a little easy. I mean, it's, you know, like it's fine. We already have blood on Finarfin's hands, or Fingolfin's hands. Right, always the you know the hands of Fingolfin's people, um, and we arranged that I think in interesting ways. We also have cause for 
sort of battle rage on the part of Fingolfin and his people, right? In the death of another... Oh, shoot. The death of another minor female character. Irenae. Three. Three times. Only three times does it happen. Um, three is the number, and the number <laughs> shall be. Yeah. Three. Three, three, three times. Um, and there's no getting around to that. That is directly fridging for Fingolfin's benefit in that case. <laughs> And Goadriel, though. Goadriel, too. Mostly Fingolfin. That's mostly to get Fingolfin to fight in that battle. Yeah, mostly Fingolfin. Um, yeah, yeah, mostly Fingolfin. Yeah. Now, Tony points out, of course, we're going to fridge Amrod later on, so that's a, that's okay, right? Um, it's okay to fridge guys. Is that all right? We can do that. Yes. <laughs> we can do... As long as they're white, it's totally fun. Okay, okay. There's... There's a lot more examples of female characters being written out of stories in this way. So when you write a male character out, it's more unusual. It's more not unusual. unheard of, just okay. more right. unusual. Right. Okay. Okay. We, we will get plenty of male deaths. It, it'll be okay. That's that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Um, I we don't. I don't think that we have to have if if uh, uh, Arwen is killed with a weapon of some sort. I don't think we have to have her being singled out for death, right? I don't think we have to depict Fingolfin or anyone else, like, you know, coming up to Arwen and deliberately stabbing her, uh, you know, with malice aforethought. Um, Especially on the bridge. On the bridge, we have, you know, arrows being exchanged, right? I mean, this could just the... Simply having her standing there and having... Um, uh, and having a, you know, an arrow, you know, take her through the chest and she topples off the bridge. Wait, wait a minute. Could we just have one of her people, because they're getting punched up, right, on the top of the bridge by the two forces coming up the sides? Couldn't she just, like, kind of get squeezed off? Well, she I'm sure a bunch that. of that's I'm still worried about anyway. cause of death. Like, if she is fully alive yeah. and functioning when she leaves the bridge, whether she leaves it over under her own power or not, she's going to end up getting killed by the water or something. And 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 I'm not I'm not I'm not cool with her being killed by the water because again, just symbolically, that doesn't seem to work. But again, thinking thinking about the whole the whole distillation um, of the kinslaying thing, right? Aolwe, or Aolwe, listen to me, I'm all mashing my elvish names together. Olwe is the... Olwe being murdered by Feanor distills the whole, like, the malice of the Feanorians, right? You know, that is, like, the one symbol of Feanor's willingness to kill in order to get his way, right? In order for, you know, to accomplish his end. Um, so we, 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 we show that in the, we, we distill that into the person of Olway, right? What are we distilling into the person of Arwen in her death? And I think that it works reasonably well to have her be the one of, uh, um, basically she, she is the representative of like the other, uh, the other Teleri who get caught up 
in this, right? You know, so to have her die almost incidentally, right? That is to say, again, not as the result of a climactic fight or a climactic moment when somebody chooses to kill her, right? But have her just take an arrow in the crossfire and, um, and, and, and be killed, right? You know, so she just, she dies like the, um, you know, the, the many of the, the standers by here. And I actually like it being Fingolfin's people, uh, like the arrow coming from Fingolfin's people. And the reason I like that is, again, we have both sides for it, right? The always death is the distillation of the, like, active aggression of Feanor and his followers. But, of course, that's not the only reason that Teleri die at the Kinslaying. They also die due to the, like, tragic misunderstandings and miscommunications that brought the people of Fingolfin, who do not have the same you know, malice, that same kind of ter- determination that Feanor does. Um, and so to have her be sort of the representative of those who died tragically in that way. Um, so to have her just kind of take take an arrow. Mariel is wondering if she could put herself in between two combatants to try to stop the violence and uh, and ends up getting killed sort of accidentally that way. That would make her a little bit more active rather than just standing there and then suddenly dying. Um, if she's stabbed, it's a little harder to chuck her off the bridge if we still want to chuck her off the bridge. Um, that image of her falling from the arch, I think, is a, is a... But actually, the more I think about it, the image of her corpse falling from the bridge is, I think, even a more effective symbol of the kinslaying, Right and what happened, rather than her attempting to escape it and failing or something. Well, you can you can survive being stabbed for at least minutes. So. Oh, sure. No, you can do, she can have a whole Shakespearean soliloquy and then yeah. fall off, right, if we wanted to. Right. But no, I'm just thinking mechanically, yeah, I mean, there's time, but it would be a little bit hokier, right? I mean, if she's... I can see her kind of like pulling back to the edge, right? As she's like trying to back away. She's just horrified at what's happening, right? And she's, so she sort of backs away to the edge of the bridge, and then she takes an arrow in the chest and topples over, right? Whereas if she's actively engaged in the combat, she then has to, you know, do something. I guess she could throw herself off after being stabbed, right? So she gets mortally wounded, and then she we see her cast herself off. But again, I ask, what is the function? What is the symbolic function of her choice to throw herself off the bridge? Um, I don't know that I want to have that kind of... Because that looks like a self-destructive move, right? And I'm not sure that I want to have that element of self-destruction in sort of symbolically attached to the Teleri here, because I don't think that that's what's happening. Um, Well, I mean, I don't think that it needs... Like, she needs to be aware... That that's what she's doing. Like, if she gets stabbed and she takes several steps before we see that she has been stabbed, and then we see that she's been stabbed and she falls, that I feel like doesn't look like she's just wandering around with a sword poking at her or something like that. Right. You know? We could have her. So, Karita's making another suggestion. Do we actually have her aggre- not trying to stop the fighting, but taking up a weapon and, and engaging in the fighting? Um, she could, of course, see her dad get murdered by Fanor and say she's not having it anymore, and she attacks and gets killed. I, th- I think the plan that we had come up with was that she sees a way get get killed and that it's her that gives the order to to lose the arrows from the Feanor. 
Right. Yes, the whole point was that the, the Teleri did not fire weapons back until the death until of the Until that point, right, right. So that would actually, so if we have her actively then leading the assault, so she could be just involved then. She could just be falling as a, because she's one of the aggressors in that element. So um, that actually, I kind of like that. I kind of like that better because then we have Olwe as the I am attempting to resist passively and being murdered element of Teleri death and the I am fighting back against those who are killing us and taking our ships by force. Both of those elements exist within the Teleri. So again, thinking of my distillation of the Kinslaying thing, that would work. Speaking of Olway, because I know that you're probably running short on time. Um, speaking of Olway, one thing that I felt was very important, because um, the way that you guys had described it was that Olway gets onto the ship with Feanor, and then Feanor kills him. And that just didn't seem to work in my in my mind. The idea that he could somehow get onto the ship without resistance on yes. the part of yes. of the Feanorians. I like There's that. no way that that would happen. So he can stand in, in the boat and try to, to speak to Feanor, yes. but there's no way that he gets on the ship without, yeah, without it's violence. Just, uh, yeah, no, I yeah. agree. I actually like that a lot. I like the idea of Olway being completely nonviolent and attempting just to reason with them and, uh, and Feanor just mur- to have that look more like a murder because, again, that's a really important element of the kinslaying, right? There should be that sense of the murder of an innocent, the murder of an unarmed person who is just trying to reason with you. Um, yeah, murder, betrayal, those, that should clearly be emphasized in the kinslaying. I, I, I really like that, actually. Um, I thought that that was a really great change. Um, so, yeah, let's have Arwen picking up a weapon and attacking. Uh, so she dies in battle. Right, and we can still show her toppling off the. the I, I like that that visual image of her falling off the, the 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 bridge, like the downfall, you know, the literal downfall of the Teleri there. I th- I, I, I like that, um, but I do think that we, um, um, the yeah, Karina, you're right. Karina's correct. I mean, she's like, uh, that doesn't just look like a murder. That is a murder. No, exactly right. But it, it needs to be a murder that also looks like a murder is my point. Like it needs to be seen to be a murder, uh, clearly, uh, rather than come. Whereas I agree with you, Nick, if he is, uh, like, you know, winning his way onto the deck of the ship where Feanor is and then being killed, it would look like a mere escalation of combat. Right, and less clearly just a murder, right? So, yeah, which yeah. we do have um, plenty. Like, there's pirate, plenty of pirate action in this uh, in right, this episode, right? Exactly, exactly. So, did you have any preference whether Fingolfin's host or Mithros's group is the one who kills? I want it to be Fingolfin's people to kill her. Okay. Yeah. Because okay, again, just just sure. to, to, to clearly, because there's, there, there's blood on their hands, right? And again, I think if we can attach that to a particular visual, you know, when we should all be remembering the awkward death of Arwen during the conversations with Thingol later on, right? When Finrod and, and Ignor and the others are standing there in Doriath, and we, we should all be remembering the corpse of Arwen falling off the bridge when we're having that conversation, right? And I think that that really helps um, to establish that. Yeah, we're also, we are also 
having a uh, an awkward moment between Myveros and Fingolfin at the top of this arch now, because the two of them are standing there, and Myveros is like, I mean, not necessarily like excited that they've killed a bunch of people, but they won, you know, right. and there's the exhilaration that comes along with that, and yeah. Fingolfin is not is is not high fiving him right. the way that Myveros right. is kind of expecting. Exactly, exactly. And then we get the, the, the exchanged glance, right, between Feanor down below and Fingolfin up above. And see, that's why, again, it doesn't have to be Fingolfin personally who has killed Arwen, but but that brings it together, right? We have the determined guy who's willing to commit murder, right, looking up from beneath, and Fingolfin looking down from above, who also is covered with the blood of of the Teleri and whose people, you know, and, and you know, he, he, whether it's he, him personally or, um, you know, one of his people was just killed Arwen. Both of them are guilty, right? Staring in different circumstances and from different motivations and in different contexts. The people of Fingolfin never did anything but defend themselves ultimately. Right. Um, and yet they're both, you know, have the blood of the Teleri on their hands and them exchanging the glance with each other can be, I think, so, rich right you know so there's so many levels of complexity in like the different things that they're thinking and their relationship and what's i mean i think that that's that 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 makes it work really well so yeah fingolfin totally has to be um and his people have to be the one who kill arwen yeah cool well this bodes well for our progress over this season yeah no this is great so we'll be yeah, uh, we did two episodes. Well, no, we didn't just do two episodes. We also hashed out the whole frame issue and uh, 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 went on several sidetracks that we now don't need to go on next time. So we, we are prepared for uh, excellent efficiency in the future. That's how I like to think of it. You know, we've set up future efficiency. But- by by becoming mired in the details, yeah. and following a bunch of detours. Now yeah. we've 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 gotten it out of the way. <laughs> totally. There's there's no yeah, that will go on further further sojourn. No, in no it, I, personally, I consider no. that extremely unlikely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, until we get to the mess of this episode three. <laughs> oh, good girl, great. <laughs> no, well, it is a mess. Please, guys, read it over ahead of time to see what we tried to do with it, but. Um, we're probably going to need help when right. we do episode three. I, I will. I will admit that I lost more minutes off of my life span agonizing over that episode than any episode here to four that we have gotten. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, okay. All right. Well. Then, with that as a teaser for next time, next join us next time when we uh, take up the complicated subject of episode three. And I am confident we're going to get through at least. I'm going to call it. We're going to get through four episodes next time. We will get through episode six next time. That I think is what's going to happen. Uh, I, I, I it'll be good. The next episode will be in two weeks, so this will be uh, on May the fourth, right? So on May the fourth will be. Uh, uh, that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, that is. May the 4th. Um, uh, so on May the 4th, we will uh, come back together again and make Star Wars jokes and uh, talk about at least the next four episodes uh, of our episode outline. So 
Thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you, Marie and uh, Nick, for being able to be with us. Nick, I know you're with us under difficult circumstances that you're having Internet issues. And thank you for I know it, with the background noise and stuff. I know this is a sign of uh, your dedication in making yourself available for conversation with us here. So thank you for that. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming. And, and of course, for all your work throughout uh, throughout the year. So. Thank you, everybody. We look forward to discussing this with you on the next eight episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's... No, uh... no, it's totally... Well, next time I... Next time I should be home, so (laughs) it'll be a lot easier. Excellent. Yeah, so no, we we have uh, uh, no more than three, Dave. Really, I think we should be totally fine. There's a chance we might be done before Myth Moot. Yeah, 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 I think so. Maybe. I, mean, I know that the uh, the people who get excited about casting are certainly uh, going to be thrilled about all this. About having more time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah there we go. Yeah. No problems. Plenty of time. Yeah, sure. Still. Let's, let's call it that. Plenty of time to do your creative work, uh, casting suggestions, and and uh, uh, see uh, time to compose a great deal of music between now and when we're done talking about the outlines. It's all good. Okay, so thanks everybody for joining us today. I will say as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs>